Well, hello and welcome to the Adult Music Podcast. That's the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ, and over there is... This is your other co-host, Mike. And we're here, as always, bringing you the best new classical and jazz music. This is episode 117, and we've got a little different shtick this week. Uh, We're kind of doing chamber music, but uh, in small numbers all the way around in jazz, too, so... Yeah, some solo, and then some duos and trios, and a quartet too. Yeah. I even managed to get a quartet in there. Quartets aren't too tough in classical music, though. They're they're one of the most numerous types of uh, right ensembles. You know, a lot of string quartets out there. But all around, good things in small packages. So here we we're going to talk about this music, and I got to tell you, I'm really glad I have notes for this because the only thing on my mind now is just this coming week. Here, right here in Japan, looks like we're just get hit by a lot of rain. <laughs> I just can't get this out of my head now. I'm gonna have to be outside in it for a bit, and I'm just not happy about being wet. So it's gonna be like that uh, Kevin Costner movie, Water World. We're gonna be growing yeah. fins and stuff uh, because we got a week of rain, and then the typhoon is coming. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a typhoon too. Be sponges. At the end, so horrible. Terrible. <laughs> got to check if I have enough food in the house. I better do that. <laughs> I might not yeah. want to go out. I stocked up today, yeah. made sure I had everything that I needed, and we'll just hunker down and listen to some tunes for this coming week. Yep. Last week, we uh, talked about uh, Jim Alfredson's family business, great Hammond recording, right. and he shared the episode, and when people sometimes share it, they say, and they do all this without playing any music, <laughs> perhaps for yeah. licensing reasons, and that's one of the reasons why, but most of the music that I discuss from jazz, I haven't bought yet. I'm just checking out new on streaming, and yeah, right. there are some copyright issues and whatnot, but as always, every episode, you can find links for streaming. Spotify, Apple Music, and then all the music in one place in a playlist I make every week at uh, Deezer. I think it's a legitimate complaint, but people can listen to the links if they want. But I get it. I mean, only like nerds like us would do that. <laughs> you know, I want to hear this. And, yeah. You know, everybody else, just they want you to give them everything. And I understand that. You should. Well, we could give small snippets, but we really want everyone to listen to the full recordings. So uh, yeah. you, know, you could do that before or after you listen to us or don't even listen to us. Just go get the recordings and listen to them. It's all up to you. One of the issues I have with classical music, I, mean, I guess I could play like a snippet just so you can get an idea of what it sounds like. But right. and most people who listen to classical music probably listen to it for the sound of re- relaxation. But a lot of um, what makes classical music really interesting is if you play, say, a piece and you sort of interpret it a certain way at this point, one minute into the piece, that's going to affect things that happen later on in the same right. movement. So, you know, if you play it like this, what are you going to do when you reach this other point later? Yeah. And this is kind of what makes uh, makes it so interesting. It's kind of an intellectual sort of um, thing, but most people aren't really listening to it that way. And I feel like you sort of miss that if, yeah. I, if I'm just kind of putting clips off because I can't possibly demonstrate that, you know? I could mention it, but... Anyway, all the links you need and the recording information is there in the description. Just scroll down and check it out wherever you prefer. And you can also get the podcast and playlist together on Deezer there if you want to listen to everything in one place. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. If you got any musically-minded friends, take a moment. Give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations. And also come follow us on our Facebook page. You can get extra info and more new releases throughout the week. I put up a bunch of new jazz there. You can leave a message or comment as well. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll be sure to reply. 
Before we go on any further, we want to recommend another podcast, our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. It's kind of a nice compliment to our podcast, as they've said kindly about us as well. We focus on new recordings, and there's always some standards that pop up in the jazz recordings. You'll hear a few tonight. But what they do is pick one jazz standard for each episode, and then they go through the history of it, and they play little snippets of the versions, and they talk about what they like and don't like. And so uh, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Haber over there. So check out their podcast. I was listening to their most recent episode, which is the Cole Porter tune, I've Got You Under My Skin. I always associate that with uh, Frank Sinatra because I, I remember my dad had that record. Exactly. On an eight-track tape. <laughs> an eight-track tape. I still remember it. That's one of the recordings of it that they discussed. Yeah. And that brought back a story for me. Now, <laughs> I'm getting to be old, so you know how old guys are. They tell the same stories all the time. Now, I know I've told you right. this, but I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast. And uh, those guys might get a kick out of it, too. So back in when I lived in New York, I had another trumpet-playing friend when I was studying music. TJ and we we would play uh, trumpets together and we actually uh, brewed beer together. We had our own little brewery thing going for a while. <laughs> and of course, like you and I have done for more than 20 years, we would always swap recordings. And right. I remember one time, I think I had given him my Blue Mitchell, The Thing to Do, which is a great blue mm-hmm. note recording. It's got Chick Corea on it. And I think he had lent me Frank Sinatra and Count Bracey live at the Sands, right? It was uh, live at the Copa Room, the Sands Hotel and Casino Las Vegas, 1966. And he had taken it. And at the time, we were both university students. He was working for his father's company part-time. And he went in to go to work. And he had these CDs. And he set them down on the desk. And his father's secretary said, oh, what's what's that? What are those? He said, "Uh, it's just some jazz recordings. Trust me, you wouldn't be interested. And she said, no, what's that one recording there? And he said, oh, all right. Yeah, see, Frank Sinatra, Count Basie at the Sands, like I told you. She says, well, what makes you think I wouldn't be interested? I was there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, turns out she was there that night in Vegas because they had their honeymoon there and was in the crowd on the performance, you know, so... A little nice musical coincidence that uh, doesn't happen with streaming. You can only find these little moments if you have the actual CDs. Right. There you go. There you go. It's another uh, reason to the, for the, the physical item. Right. Of which I'm a big fan. And my house is not. <laughs> because there's no room for them. <laughs> yep. I was just wooing the ladies today with the uh, giant oh. collection, too. She, she ran for the door when she saw that. This is not... <laughs> Not not normal. <laughs> not marriage material. This guy's a serial killer. <laughs> I don't want to be in this house for another minute. <laughs> no. Oh, well. All right. Well, also, let's see. I think we're starting out our program tonight with some CPE Bach. Yeah, this is one of our uh, favorite uh, composers. composers. And we just mm-hmm. found out this week there's going to be a CPE Bach release coming out soon by <laughs> Keith Jarrett. Yeah. And that was kind of exciting news. Yeah. It was recorded back in 95 or something. 1994. It's good old ECM with those gigantic vaults of stuff they haven't (laughs) released. (laughs) I want to really go in there and just look at what they have, you know, because I think more than half of it probably isn't released yet. A double album of CPE Bach by Keith Jarrett. That's going to be yeah. Uh, you got to wonder what he'll pull yeah. out of that. Will will he do it with the sense of humor, or will he add something new? Or we don't really know because he's really uh, he he's got this really great style as a classical pianist as well as a yeah jazz pianist. So he's he's really um he kind of in a way is the epitome of what we're kind of aiming for here on adult music because we feel right. like listeners should be listening to classical and jazz the way Keith Jarrett plays both classical and jazz. Like you're at the uh, the summit of like 
this kind of music, you know, composed and improvised and things like yeah. that. Well, it's definitely going to be worth checking out and probably pretty interesting. So I'm looking forward to hearing that yeah. when it's available. Yeah. Another thing about um, composed music, some people, like Americans especially, they think, oh, you know, well, there's no improv. There used to be improvisation in classical music. Yeah. But why would you compose music? Well, for the same reason you'd um, read a novel. Um, because you have this really long story that you can put across. So in a piece of composed music, you can create musical events that sort of, you know, you set it up and then it can pay off later. So right. it has that sort of narrative quality or this um, idea of setting up something so that it will, will um, really impact later or things yep. like that. So that's something that improvised music doesn't do. So it's just two completely different things. I mean, you could do that in improvised music, but uh, yeah. you, know, you could shape your solo a certain way. But it's, it's a little different because you're doing it over a longer period of time in classical music. Yeah. That's why. So there it is. It's like a novel. It's they're the novels of music. Let's yeah. put it that way. There you go. Anyway, CPE Bach. Okay, so here's our first um, recording for this week. Um, Sonatas for a Keyboard and Violin. And that's the name of the album. Usually they'll put the violin first. And I would hmm. here because the violinist is Rachel Podger. Yeah. A, a British violinist that we like very much. Also, I couldn't resist this because we both sure. are big fans of C.P.E. Bach and um, Rachel Podger. I want to say, I said this last week about C.P.E. Bach. He's kind of like, like, you know, in the church, you have like patron saints. I think C.P.E. Bach is sort of the patron musician of the postmodern age because he generally has ideas that get quickly interrupted and go on to something else in surprising right. ways. And that's kind of the part of the reason why, because Mozart's music just flowed from beginning to end with a lot of little surprises mm -hmm. in it. And C.P.E. Bach would like slam on the brakes and sort of change direction and things like that in the rhythm. And um, so I feel like he's more fitting for our age than maybe for previous ages, except Could for the be. one he was born in. Because uh, Mozart, though, he was great. He liked his music a lot. Anyway, so Rachel Podger on the violin and uh, the pianist here, and I looked this pronunciation up, Christian... Ooh. Bejadenhout. Bejadenhout. Christian Bejadenhout. That's a Dutch name, oh. and he is born in South Africa. He's on the uh, forte piano and the harpsichord both, so he, I'll right. explain when we uh, start talking about the tracks. This album is on the Channel Classics label. You got that name out really smoothly. That's pretty good. I've been say, practicing say it once more all day. Bejadenhout. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Bejadenhout. Okay. Christian Bajadenhout couldn't say Yuja Wang a few weeks ago, <laughs> but now Christian Bajadenhout, first time, no problem. <laughs> Bajadenhout was born in uh, South Africa, studied music in Australia, and at the Eastman School of Music in New York. How about oh. that? He's gotten around. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just his studies. I mean, I, I have to yeah. stay in the same place. I mean, I really <laughs> envy these guys that they get to see the whole world like when they're younger. And he now lives in London. So there you go. Oh. He's hit all the big uh, English-speaking places, or a lot of them anyway. The instruments used on this album, this is always kind of a big deal when we're talking about music from this era. Now, Rachel Padre plays a Pesinatius violin uh, made in Genoa in 1739. It's not a copy. It's the oh. original. And I'm guessing she's using gut strings on this too. She gets a really exquisite mm. tone out of this. We'll get into that too. Yeah, this would have been a good one for a music sample, actually, um, because... Um, it's, it really does have a unique sound, this entire recording. But which track to use, because we have both the harpsichord and the forte piano right. here. The Jadenhout's forte piano. A forte piano is an early piano. It has hammers that hit the strings, but it sounds a little more dinky. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, it's not really a good word. It's kind of an insulting word. It does sound good, but it doesn't have the power of the modern nine-foot grand piano. But this is the instrument 
that people like Beethoven would have played. It's a copy built by Paul McNulty in 2008 of an instrument by Anton Walter and Son, Vienna, circa 1805. So this is around the time uh, Beethoven was writing his uh, Symphony Three, and two years after the Moonlight Sonata. And the harpsichord that he uses is a copy built by Keith Hill in 2010 of a French double manual harpsichord by Pascal Taskin in Paris, 1769. Old instruments. Wow. Now, a double manual harpsichord means it has two keyboards on it. One will strike one string. The other one will strike three strings so that it's louder. Okay, right. so a harpsichord can't get soft and loud on its own. It kind of needs um, – you have different keyboards for that, so it's not versatile as a piano. Anyway, the way this program is set up, there are four sonatas and there's a set of um, variations in the middle. It's set up with the two earlier works – Book ending the program, and they're both um, on those. Bjadenhout plays the um, harpsichord, and for the two later sonatas sandwiched into the middle, he plays the forte piano. So it goes harpsichord, forte piano, right? And then the um, Ariosa has the uh, forte piano and then harpsichord again. So it's it's an interesting program. Let's start with uh, tracks one through three, sonata in G minor. H five four two point five. I really don't know much about how CPE's music is yeah. organized. Uh, a few different scholars have uh, gotten their hands on this, and now there are all these kinds of different numberings now. And I, I don't. One of them has to like get preference because it's hard to know anything. Anyway, this is played on the harpsichord and the violin. It's the earliest work on the album, and it has been reliably attributed to CPE Bach and. To his father, J.S. Bach. So we don't really know who, hmm. who composed it. Let me say that again. It's been reliably attributed to both people. That means that there's sort of a trail that scholars right. followed that leads them to believe that C.P.E. Bach wrote it. And then there's another trail that makes them think J.S. Bach wrote it. Well, <laughs> they can't figure out which is which. How old would he have been at the time of this composition? Oh, I had to look that up. Let me see. So he was born uh, you gotta make me do oh, some wonder, research here. i'm wondering see. if it could be possible that he did it under his father's oversight you know what i mean and that's why that's very possible like and in fact i don't have this in my uh, itunes right now so i don't know but anyway he would have been probably in his 20s when he wrote it i think yeah so very possible yeah i didn't write the years even though i write them all the time on the um dad was looking over his shoulder and <laughs> saying don't do that <laughs> well well that's very possible because the music it says here bears in different places the fingerprints of both of them the musical mm. fingerprints and the piece draws and you can hear you can yeah. hear it too the piece draws on the forms and styles of the vivaldian concerto which um johann sebastian bach uh, really admired and learned a lot from too and he copied a lot of those as well uh, with its three-movement form and the ritornello principles and concertante effects. Concertante being like the full ensemble in this case, I guess the tutti, mm. and then the uh, solo instrument coming in in between. Okay, the first uh, movement is untitled. It doesn't have a direction in it. And the keyboard alone plays a uh, ritornello theme. A ritornello is sort of like you hear in a rondo. It means it's just going to keep coming back. It returns. Right, ritornello, ritorno is return, and then there's a violin solo based on a completely different theme, and then they engage with each other's material. So it's like they have these um, it's like you and your girlfriend, you know, like you like heavy metal and she likes um, you know, Taylor Swift, and now you're trading each other's music <laughs> together because you like each other. <laughs> so anyway, this um, movement, uh, it sounds baroque even in the way the music moves because it's got this sort of uh, perpetual motion sort of rhythm to it as much baroque music has. At 23 seconds, we finally hear the violin 
The keyboard's theme is far more active than the violins here. And Padre has this fantastic, like, vibrato sound that always draws me in. I've been listening to her for years because of it. It's kind of a sweet sound, but it's not, like, very sweet like a modern violin would make. So it's got a little bit of darkness to it, too. It evokes a sound from a past age, and I think that's what I really like about her. Because I really feel like I'm stepping into the past hmm. when I listen to her play. Although you never are. This is something we need to uh, keep in mind when listening to classical music. People say it's old music, yes, but it's being performed today. That makes it music of today because it's being interpreted in a right. way that it's never been interpreted before. Because we don't know what music from the past would have sounded like. We don't have recordings no. of it earlier than the 20th century. So keep that in mind. The harpsichord positively rains down notes in this opening track. Its patterns often loop around in a repeating theme. At 2 minutes and 30 seconds in, we really hear the violin engaging with the harpsichord's theme for the first time. Second movement, adagio. I have a friend, by the way, that when he sees the adagio marking, he, he really thinks that's going to be something special because he's familiar with like <laughs> the big romantic adagios like by Mahler or Beethoven's string, late string quartets or things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a tempo marking. And in this case, <laughs> it's really short. <laughs> yeah. So in Baroque music, it's not quite the same thing. It just means it's slow. It's the slow movement. And there's a lot of Vivaldi, I think, in this theme. The keyboard takes a lead at the beginning, playing a fairly busy line at a slow tempo, hmm. with the violin stretching out tones with a sweetness only Rachel Podger can conjure. The harpsichord's constant playing gives this a light sort of motor rhythm. You don't really hear this much in adagios. Usually the, yeah. the harpsichord will be like sprinkling a few notes in there just to kind of you know, give you like a, you know, give a rhythmic profile sort of. His technique on this was remarkably springy in uh, yeah. <laughs> effect. I picked up on that. I thought it was a really unique bounce back that was apparent uh, in his style of playing. I was kind of attracted to that. Anyway, the movement keeps moving. It doesn't linger. It's very pretty. And the ear is really mostly on the keyboard in this, surprisingly. You, you would think the, the violin would have mm. most of the interest because of the melody third movement allegro uh, the keyboard opens this and the violin joins in at the end of melodic lines the violin gets some appealing repeated eighth notes that outline the tempo set by the harpsichord uh, basically the violin extends the themes of the harpsichord and they trade themes at parts at the two minute and nine second mark there's a new section with a memorable melody in the violin at three minutes and 30 seconds there's a cadence and a repeat of the b section material as though the work were from the baroque era all those Bach dances that we had to play on the piano, they have like a, an A section and then you'd repeat the A section and then there's a B section. You repeat the B section and the piece is over. You don't really get the repeat of the A section mm. that became popular later, like in trios by Mozart and then in the Romantic era. Okay, so track four through six. Now we're moving over to the forte piano and a later work, uh, Sonata in C minor. And they, they don't give us the H number here. They give us <laughs> the uh, Vatquen number, which is the oldest um, person who... Um, organize these works. Uh, this is number 78, Vatquen 78. This and the B minor sonata belong to a set of four sonatas that uh, good old CPE composed in 1763. So I got the year of this one. So 1763, let's see, at that age, that Mozart is seven years old at this point. He, mm. he would later come to admire CPE. Anyway, starts Allegro Moderato and the uh, pathos, which is a quality evoking pity or sadness comes from the intertwining of the two treble voices. So this is kind of operatic in a way, the way the, um, the two um, voices uh, intertwine here. The violin tone evokes pathos well, 
with the piano playing more like a classical instrument here. It was more like a Baroque instrument, the harpsichord, in the earlier work. So this does sound like it comes from a different period, although the earlier work could have been played on the forte piano as well. It comes in with the thematic material at around the 28 second mark, picking up on the violin's opening, and gets some solo time. I like the handling of the material between the two instruments in the opening. I feel like Padger manages to be more emotive, uh, despite not having the use of vibrato to draw out emotion. She's really unique in this way. I like the way she can draw emotion out of the out of her tone, really, without any sort of um, effects. Right. how comes down pretty hard on the same melody, and he doesn't get the same emotional quality that Padger gets. But I guess you would expect that. He lightens up in the repeat of the material, though. Uh, this is probably his interpretation, though. He puts across emotion more by his phrasing than his tone, and I'm, I suppose that's because of the instrument. A development section begins after a long-held cadence at 4 minutes and 16 seconds. The playing gets darker as the keyboard goes into the lower range. Again, Padra shines in her phrasing, and here I liked Bajadenhout's um, echoing of these phrases. There's a softening of tone of the violin just before the return to the opening material at 6 minutes and 28 seconds. This is a fairly long movement for its uh, era. By the point, Bajadenhout is well into his tone and rhythm. <laughs> I really wish I had written this guy's name down so many times. <laughs> I like the depth he uh, draws out of his bass notes, uh, despite the lighter tone of the forte piano over the piano. A poignant movement, poignantly played for the most part. Okay, I'm, I'm said that because it's it's hard to say his name. <laughs> Second movement is an adagio, ma non troppo, but not too much. The first time in the work where the two radically different musics cohabit in the two instruments, conjuring poignancy, fragility, and delicacy. So I guess here the, uh, the heavy metal and the Taylor Swift have intertwined to become some kind of indie rock or something. <laughs> I don't know. Lovely um, arpeggiated lines are heard here in the forte piano for the opening of the movement. The violin enters almost uh, unnoticed on a pianissimo tone. This is pretty amazing, her entry here. Mm. She, she almost kind of tiptoes in. And crescendos via bowing to the solo spot and plays the touching melody in an evocative tone. Throughout the movement, the piano is busy with arpeggios while the violin emotes via the melody. It's almost as though the two lines are unaware of each other's presence, really, narratively speaking, anyway. The performers certainly know what they're doing in this interpretation, though. At the four minute and nine second mark, the forte piano's tone mellows with a softer sound on the attack and Padre plays her line touchingly. She's a pleasure to listen to in this movement especially. Really, she's a pleasure to listen to all through this album, really. The approach to the final cadence is especially captivating in the violin. And the third movement is marked presto, very fast. The booklet notes um, describe this as collisions between the sonata form and fugue. Okay, a fugue would be more of a Baroque era form where you have note against note, like all voices are playing a melody. Uh, virtuosity and silence. Playful imitation and the energies of a dance of death. To be honest, I didn't hear the dance of death part. <laughs> anyway, but Brahms performed this piece on its centenary in 1863, interestingly enough. Hmm. And uh, if, you, if you know Brahms' E minor cello sonata, when he composed that, uh, this, piece was, this movement was probably on his mind. To me, it dances from the start in a kind of fast jig rhythm. So when we hear like a fast kind of dance like this, they're saying dance of death, but it doesn't really have any darkness mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. It sounds like a Bach jig to me, the way they play it here, though. The two performers trade lines. It sounds a lot like something rhythmically, you know, like I said, Johann Sebastian Bach would have come up with. I think of the jigs in his um, French suites and English suites. It kind of has that kind of feel to it. 
though here it's more in the gallant style, the decorative style that's not really going for any real emotion. At 4 minutes and 10 seconds for the first time on the album, we get one of uh, CPE's sudden harmonic jolts, followed by an odd pause. That's at 4 minutes and 10 seconds, if you want to hear it. The duo responds to it well, understanding the humor here. Now, this is something that uh, Russ and I discussed this week. Um, the, the works on this album don't have a lot of these um, yeah. hallmarks that we've come to really enjoy in CPE box music. Um, they... Um, they occur once or twice, but uh, mm. none of these pieces is um, particularly funny in a way. You know what I mean? Right. So P.E. has a lot of humor, but here he's going for something else. He's going for something a little more, I don't want to say it would be memorable anyway, but something a little more, not really serious, beautiful. I don't know. I can't really think of the word, but something a little more traditionally artistic, let's say. Right. I don't know what to say about that. And that's the end of that work. Anyway, track seven is the uh, midpoint of the album, and uh, this is an arioso con variazioni, and uh, it's marked per il cembalo e violino. Cembalo could be a harpsichord, really. Um, in A major, Vatquen 79. But this is played on the forte piano, not on the harpsichord, on this um, particular album. This reworks an earlier solo keyboard piece in the style of the accompanied sonata, which had spread from Paris and become fashionable throughout Germany by... 1780. Uh, it's a theme in five variations, and this is really nice. Usually, I'm not usually a fan of variations uh, movements, but uh, this one had the variations were really interesting. I thought there's an interesting sound at the beginning with the forte piano playing quietly and the violin in its lowest range. It sounds really throaty, a sound that we usually associate with the cello, but she gets something like that out of the violin at the beginning. Uh, there are pauses between phrases that catch the ear. The theme has a lot of the hallmarks we associate with CPE Bach, unexpected harmonies that derail the approach to the cadence, and sudden changes of direction, and sudden fortissimo outbursts. There's one at the minute and 42nd mark, and many following in this first variation. The variations aren't so dramatically different from the theme uh, that they're easy to spot. You have to be listening to the cadences in order to follow them all. The second one begins at uh, 3 minutes and 30 seconds, and has a slightly more ornate piano accompaniment. It features certain patterns that are reminiscent of the Baroque era, and some of them actually reminded me of the chord patterns in uh, Pachelbel's Canon, which I, a work <clears throat> I think everybody knows, right? If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard this when the, <laughs> the bride walked in. This particular variation, the chord changes and the way it was played sort of reminded me a bit of that. It had the same character, if not the same melody. The uh, next variation, the third variation at five minutes and one second, goes into the darker, slower minor key, it's got a lot more space and stands out from what we've heard so far. At 7 minutes and 11 seconds, a sunnier, lighter harmony starts the next variation. It's slow and uh, touching in its lighter harmony. It has an interesting false cadence after the 8 minute and 50 second mark in the variation. And at 9 minutes and 11 seconds, the fifth and final variation starts. It has slightly more energy, but still proceeds cautiously. In this work, I'm listening more to the keyboard as the violin really seems to be adding to the keyboard line rather than taking any kind of lead itself. I guess that's why they called it sonatas for keyboard and violin. Hmm. The keyboard seems to be taking the lead quite a bit here. Tracks 8 through 10 are the other later sonata, uh, sonata in B minor, Vatkven 76, and this is played on the forte piano again. First movement, Allegro Moderato. The booklet notes say that the work dramatizes to an unprecedented extent the stylistic contrasts between the keyboard ritornello 
and the violin solo. The ritornello is sort of the uh, the tutti when usually the whole orchestra is playing, but the keyboard is playing all the voices at this point. And they experience a gradual rapprochement over the course of the movement. This is actually pretty cool because um, they start sort of separated and then slowly the two voices come together. It's pretty interesting. And again, this is something that happens over time. This is something I can't give you a musical sample of. You'd have to hear the whole movement. Right. Anyway, it starts with the keyboard playing solo figuration. Bajadin uh, does a lot of to accent the bass here, which is providing melodic material. When the violin comes in, it completely changes the feel of the piece, coming in more slowly than the busy tempo established by the piano. At the one minute mark, there's a surprising chord, and the piano starts its busy figure again, the violin coming in to interrupt and pull things its own way. The piece is expressing two different temperaments at this point, and at the point of transition between themes, they come together and trade figuration at around the two minute mark. We finally get a cadence in the solo keyboard at uh, two minutes and 32 seconds. Then the violin starts with another theme. The Jadenhout is um, pretty emphatic with his material in this movement, especially in the bass. I guess he's going for something insistent here, and it's a good way to interpret this rather odd movement. Padra basically plays with her sweet tone, trying to bring the material with her, but is generally wrestled away by the keyboard until the end when they start trading figures again. I liked Padra's tone throughout, which she varies quite a bit in this movement. The second movement, this is um, track uh, nine if you're following along, Poco Andante. So the first movement sets up this um, expressive melodic dialogue between the two instruments that we hear here. The violin starts earnestly and a bit sadly on its theme. Oh, by the way, that reminds me, when you're listening to classical works, listen to all of the movements of the work. They're intended to be heard one after the other together. We kind of contemporary people like to think of music in terms of tracks, you know, this track. But classical music was written in parts and uh, it was supposed to have an overall effect, like a meta effect, fast, slow, fast, that sort of thing. And they even get into other deeper um, sort of ideas as the uh, centuries go on. Anyway, this uh, Poco Andante, the violin starts earnestly and a bit sadly on its theme, accompanied sensitively by piano chords. The keyboard gets a turn at the melody as well. They begin trading lines as the movement goes on, and I notice that Podger and Bajadenhout, though they play well together, have very different ways with their phrasing, probably brought on by the qualities of their instruments. Uh, Bajadenhout will leave a lot of space damping the closing notes of his phrases so that they don't sustain, like he'll just mm. cut them off, while Podger will let her tone taper off, so like she'll sort of, you know, like it's getting further and further away. She's, uh, a lot more legato in her playing than him, meaning the notes connect seamlessly. For obvious reasons, the piano doesn't do legato well, but there are ways to kind of fake it on the piano, and the forte piano is even harder to do. But I think uh, Bajadenhout plays up this difference in his playing. He's really wants you to hear the difference. The third movement, Allegretto Siciliano. Siciliano is always a word I like to see because uh, I kind of like this rhythm. The musical trajectory of the previous movement spills over into this one where the interplay between instruments reaches the apogee of its sophistication. You can tell I didn't write that, right? <laughs> That's from the booklet. <laughs> the apogee, a word I would never think to use on my own. Anyway, each voice completes uh, the thoughts of the other. Okay, this is Siciliano rhythm. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, is a big change from what we've been hearing on the album. There's a lot of space in this rather slowly taken uh, Siciliano. It kind of creates this sort of magical feel to it. 
There's an appealing dip in the rhythm on the downbeat, and this has a lot to do with the interpretation as well as the rhythm itself. The duo trade lines or imitate each other. It's an attractive movement and pretty straightforward in the way it um, develops. Tracks 11 through 14, we have a four-movement work here. This is the Sonata in D major, Vatquen, 71, and we're back to the harpsichord on this one. This is a 1746 reworking of a piece that Young CPE composed in 1731. That means the first work that we heard is earlier than 1731. Well, maybe not. I don't know. It has a deeply modern, for its time, mixture of styles. Okay, so if anybody... Uh, I want you to think about this. Mixture of styles. We live in an age where mixture of styles is really um, popular. I think back, this, <laughs> you know, I, I just said we live in an age, and I'm going to go back to the 1990s. Um, if anybody <laughs> remembers Beck's album, Odelay, it just mixed all these different pop styles into one you know, track on each song on that album. It was pretty amazing. But there are earlier uh, versions of that sort of thing, and uh, CPE does it here except that it's <laughs> different styles of baroque era music and you sort of have to know what they are in order to get this um, element out of the music. This starts out, the first movement has an improvised cadenza that embellishes its final cadence. Okay, there's no note that says whether Bajad and Howard actually improvised this cadenza or if it um, was written out by CBE mm. for other pianists to play. So we don't really know. The expressive vocabulary is galant with tender sweetness to the fore. Okay, now Gallant, let's remember, comes after the Baroque era, and music got more surface level. It's not really going for some sort of deeper meaning here. It was decorative, it was, it was pretty, and uh, Haydn and Mozart sort of changed that by um, getting deeper with the harmony and uh, creating new uh, ways of expression. Anyway, a brief movement starting with a gentle harpsichord line over which the violin comes in after a measure or two. At 25 seconds, the harpsichord sound changes, to a muted guitar-like sound, briefly, I really loved this moment. A few interesting chord changes are heard. Uh, there's one at the 51 second mark, listen to that. The movement is melodic and has a sung quality throughout. Podge's songfulness shines through in this movement. There's another excellent false cadence at 2 minutes and 20 seconds. The cadenza begins at 2 minutes and 34 seconds and is heard in both instruments, which trade lines and vary the harmony making us wonder if we're getting too far away from the main key to have it resolve. But no worries, CPE has a smooth regaining of the cadential material. Second movement is an allegro, so this goes slow, fast, slow, fast. So the second movement, um, this is track, let's see, 12. The keyboard's right hand is almost always subservient to the violin's attractively popular melody in this movement. One's ears are really squarely on the violin here in this very lively movement. At the 24 second mark, we hear one of CPE's characteristic unexpected pauses. Otherwise, this is pretty straightforward and energetically played. The third movement, Adagio, is a stylistic swerve. It introduces intense French overture-style concertinart music <laughs> in B minor with extravagantly ornate violin writing. It starts in the harpsichord almost in the style of J.S. Bach's Italian concerto middle movement. So if you know the Italian concerto by... Johann Sebastian Bach, think about the middle movement, and this has that kind of space. The violin comes in with an intertwining melodic line, uh, and after the one-minute mark, the harpsichord gets a brief moment alone. The fourth movement is uh, a set of two menuets, and this is how the piece ends. Um, the violin shadows the keyboard melody in the manner of a Parisian-accompanied sonata in this movement. 
it's got a gentle opening played with light chiming tone on the harpsichord and a less than full-bodied violin tone here though warm as always the harpsichord sound is muted even more for the second menuet it gets most of the foreground with the violin offering imitations and that's the album first of all i guess i should mention how good this recording is it's uh, an sacd it's a surround sound if and you can also hear it in um dsd if you have an sacd player with two channels it gives a great sense of space and clarity in the uh, surround so the the sound is really rich and spacious the performances are really great with uh, padra being the partner i had my ears on most throughout although bajadenhout drew my ears quite a bit too these two are well matched as a duo but padra really stood out for me and I warmed to Bajadenhout's approach as the album went on, really. I really was really liking him a lot towards the end. Temperamentally, uh, the two players seem very different, with Padre relishing beauty of phrasing and tone, while Bajadenhout seemed to shine in the more dance-like movements. That said, he has a lot of intricate, constantly moving lines in these works. I especially liked his forte piano sound and his accents in the bass end of the instrument. You can sample track six for some of that. The program certainly interested me, two forte piano sonatas sandwiched between two sonatas using the harpsichord, and at the center of all that, the Ariozo con Variazioni. These are all interesting works, inviting re-listening in order to figure out how they're put together. They're kind of odd in the best CPE Bach sense. You never get what you expect with him, and with interpretations of his music, this was another enjoyable, surprising album that I will certainly revisit. Yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot. Beautiful playing, wonderful tone, especially from Padre's violin. And I really like that springy kind of feel that he, when he switches over to the forte piano, he retains a lot of that type of mood, uh, even <laughs> though the tone's very different. And I love the phrasing, very musical direction in all of the phrases of the melodies. Uh, and as you mentioned, this recording has a glowing sound quality to yeah, it. Yeah, glowing it's is a good word for it. Yeah. really um, awakens you. But other than in a few places, I mean, the music is gorgeous. The, yeah. <laughs> as you mentioned, these uh, works don't have that quirkiness that we've come to love of his keyboard works. So I wonder if he wrote a lot of those, uh, you know, to be performed by himself, <laughs> to yeah. amuse himself or surprise listeners. And, uh, you know, there's a few spots in there with those cadences and things. But overall, I just got a sense of real beauty and nice sort of a sense of composition and the performances bring out all of the nice direction in the music. So I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, there was there were a few uh, harmonic surprises in there, but not like the whole works weren't written around them sort of, you yeah. know. And before we leave this, you got to say his name, Bejadenhout. Go for it. Bejadenhout. There you go. I got it. All <laughs> right. right. <laughs> now you know what to say when he uh when we get another recording by him. <laughs> hey, get your um romantic evening with your wife oh, let's listen to some playing by uh, Christian Bajadenhout and she'll be amazed <laughs> <laughs> next we have um, an album that I was really looking forward to and that kind of made me a little sad really because it's uh, Schubert's piano trios the two of them on this case it also includes uh, his Noturno for piano trio Rondo for a violin and piano and Arpeggione Sonata in this case for cello and piano. It was originally written for an instrument like the cello called the arpeggione. The artists here are Christian Tetzlaff on the violin, Tanya Tetzlaff on the cello, and Lars Vogt on the piano. And this is on the Ondine label. Now, this was a little bit of, it was very bittersweet for me because uh, Vogt died in um, September, 2022 of cancer of the throat and liver. 
And there's a photo of the trio in the booklet with a dedication to Vogt too. And the reason I wanted to do this was because first of all, I really wanted to um, play up the partnership of Christian Tetzlaff and Lars Vogt. It's a great loss to um, classical music chamber playing. And also with the addition of Tanya Tetzlaff, she's uh, recorded a few albums with uh, these two as well. The booklet notes um, in the CD all consist of Tanya and Christian discussing Lars Vogt and what he was like. So it's sort of um, around him and his comments on these works. Tanya Tetzlaff is uh, Christian's younger sister by seven years. She plays the cello. He plays the violin. The um, trio, this same trio, has recorded uh, the Dvorak trios three and four and Brahms' complete trios. And the really magical pairing of uh, Tetzlaff and Vogt by themselves, the duo, have recorded violins that is by Brahms, Mozart, Beethoven, number six and eight by him, and Schumann. And I would recommend that you hear all of those recordings. They're just magical. Uh, really great playing and just um, fantastic partnership that they had. This is a real loss. Um, I really enjoyed folks playing when he's with Tetzlaff more than when he's solo. Because <laughs> I have a few of his solo mm. recordings too, and they're very good. But uh, I was more of a fan of that duo. So this is the last recording, apparently, that uh, Falkt made before he uh, he died. And I really wanted to hear it, despite the fact that we heard an early, um, a piano trio recording earlier this year by Schubert. This is both of them. And uh, let's go through this. Piano trio number one. This is a two-CD set, by the way. It's pretty long. Both piano trios are more than 45 minutes, or more than 40 minutes, anyway. They're very long works. But uh, they're just jam-packed with melody and... Yeah. Uh, so, sort of like you, you had mentioned Imelda Marcos earlier. We were talking about something else. <laughs> this is like Imelda Marcos. The melodies in here are like uh, Imelda Marcos' shoe closet. You know, there's just so many of them. No. <laughs> you wonder how they all got into one work. Some listeners know? might be wondering why I was mentioning Imelda Marcos because I yeah, encountered her in the uh, Manila airport. And it was very interesting because no one was paying any attention to her. And, yeah. uh, of course, right away I looked at her shoes and she was just wearing kind of boring blue <laughs> pumps that day. So there you okay. go. <laughs> I'm sure she had all kinds of fancy shoes as well as boring ones as well for every occasion. That could have been what was in all those <laughs> suitcases that she had. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> all right. Anyway, the first movement of this four movement work, this is, this is a gigantic work as is the piano trio number two. So in piano trio number one, B flat major. We start Allegro Moderato, and the recording right away, you'll notice, is vivid and full. It's recorded very close, surprisingly, with the string instruments bursting out of the speaker in the foreground, and the piano slightly back. Um, that's not going to be the case throughout the entire album, but in this work, it is. Now, my year, of course, is on Folkt, because uh, he plays beautifully, and he gets a solo section at the beginning of the first minute, complete with the famous scales in this piece. These, he has these scales that kind of go up the keyboard in between sections. At the two-minute mark, the Teslafs and Folk all get a chance at the second theme, and the lyricism they all bring to it is superb. From the two-minute and 30-second mark, I was attracted to Folk's setting of the rhythm. Uh, this movement moves beautifully with the rhythm very present to the ear, not to mention the gorgeous melodies. Every member individually is on top form here. At the three-minute and 53-second mark, a repeat of the exposition begins, and I realize how fully aware I am of everything that's happening. So compelling is each musician's take on the individual parts. But make no mistake, this is great ensemble playing. At the 7 minutes and 16 second mark, we hear the development section begin. <laughs> 7 minutes into the movement, that's a, <laughs> that's a long time to get to the middle section. 
It has spacious elements of the expository material. The bass comes up richly on the piano at uh, 8 minutes and 30 seconds. This is an upfront, richly detailed recording. I'm noticing the vividly upfront piano sound in the 13th minute. I love the interrupted cadence at 13 minutes and 43 seconds, at which point the ensemble slows down and builds gradually to the final cadence via a lot of other key areas. Piano sound is very vivid on the loud chords at 14 minutes and 30 seconds. Excellent performance and recording of this movement. The second movement, Andante, un po' mosso, has an extraordinarily beautiful theme. This is really what brings me to this work all the time when there's a new recording of it. I want to hear how this um, movement is shaped. The cello gets it first and shapes it well. I could have used more upfront presence here. Uh, same with the violin theme that follows. And um, I have to say, my, one of my favorite recordings of this work is by the long defunct Floriston trio on Hyperion. That's still my favorite recording. They get the uh, lyricism of this extremely well. Still, there's intimacy here um, in the way the full ensemble plays. And I like the vibratoless end of the section at two minutes and 30 seconds, which leads directly into an extension of the theme into new key areas. I had complained about the violin's distance at the beginning, but this pays dividends at around three minutes and 45 seconds when the violin shapes the theme distantly and sensitively. At the four minute and 20 second mark, a new section and theme begins. In fact, I'd say this movement effectively goes for sensitivity over lyricism. And we hear more lyricism in the Floristan Trio recording that I said that I prefer earlier. Here on this recording, listen to the music box quality. It's almost mechanical at the five minutes and 30 second mark. There are a lot of compelling interpretative ideas in this movement. The tenderness and spaciousness of the playing at 30 seconds onwards is moving and a welcome interpretative idea. And it's got a sensitive ending too. So to me, sensitivity is the uh, key to really grasping this particular performance of this uh, movement. The third movement uh, is the scherzo. It's marked allegro. The piano opens this with a rhythmic take on the theme uh, this is spacious recording and perfect pacing from the trio. The characterization of the theme in the piano is a bit different than what I've heard on other recordings, but the interaction between the members of the trio really makes the approach work. Lines in the piano are sensitively shaped. At the 3 minute 9 second mark, the texture thins out for the middle section. Folk's chords are very quietly and sensitively played as the Tetzloffs gently weave a melodic web above. At the 5 minute and 7 second mark, the sensitive piano accompaniment of the middle section lets up and we hear the A theme repeated. The whole movement is sensitively taken with exquisite, quiet playing in parts. Okay, that word sensitive again. This is going to be the key word for this particular trio. The fourth movement is a rondo, allegro vivace. Schubert's last movements are usually some kind of dance. And this is a pleasant melody, which the piano takes over in the second half. At the 42-second mark, we get into the first departure from the rondo, and it's appealing with its warmth and running notes. The rondo theme returns at a minute and 23 seconds. Great sound at the fourth day after 2.30. A more dance-like section follows the theme after 2.50. And at 3.55, the rondo theme is back again. Another more dissonant chord-based theme follows after the five-minute mark. The piano's gently rippling accompaniment at 5.58 is very appealing. I have to say this movement is exceptionally well shaped by the ensemble. Uh, Folk's playing throughout is sensitive and evocative. Listen after 7 minutes and 30 seconds or so, or maybe just before that. I'm singling him out despite the excellent performances all around because I feel like the Tetzlaffs are listening to him 
at this section, the piece ends on gentle piano notes followed by a forte cadence. So there are elements in this that are really magical and make me want to hear it again. Overall, I prefer the Floristan, my favorite Floristan Trio version of this, but this one has special things that the Floristan don't do that I kind of want to hear again. So once again, in certain sections, I'm really torn as to what I want to hear. Ah, this is the uh, the torture that we classical music uh, <laughs> listeners suffer. Which interpretation to go for? This ensemble does this that I like, and this other ensemble does this other thing that I like. Ugh. Anyway. The fifth um, track is the Notturno D897 for Piano Trio. All of these works, by the way, were written between 1826 and 1828, the year Schubert died at the age of 31. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, these were magical years for him. It was really incredible what came out of his pen. The Notturno starts with Vogt playing quiet, gentle chords, and he plays them beautifully. Uh, the Tetzlaff siblings play a harmonized melody over Volk's watery textures, and it's stretched out and languorous. At a minute and 15 seconds, a highly muted section of the theme begins, complete with pizzicato violin. The next variation at 140 is vibratoless and smooth. A new, more emphatic theme starts at 220 and features rushing arpeggios in the piano. There's beautiful quiet playing at 320 that crescendos to a powerful, loud theme. At 429, we hear the rondo theme come back. I also like the string pizzicati in the fifth minute as the piano played the theme. The piano's sound is full body on this recording. Listen to the line after 5 minutes and 45 seconds to hear that. There's an emphatic section that follows it, and after 6 minutes and 30 seconds, which it decrescendos. The theme comes back, this time with decoration from the piano. He continues these sorts of bird-like trills in the seventh minute, and this also has a sensitive ending. Okay, track six on CD1. For me, despite the two gigantic piano trios, this was the standout work on the album for me, or the standout performance. It's for violin and piano. It's the Rondo, D895, and it features only Christian Tetzlaff and Lars Vogt, and I just love their playing together so much. They have such like an ear for each other. And Tanya Tetzlaff fits into the ensemble well, too, but there's something really special about these two together, and we hear it here. And this is probably the last performance, uh, as far as I know, that they recorded together. And it is fantastic. It starts with some emphatic, full-sounding piano chords in a spacious environment. There's a good amount of room ambience, which helps the recording here. The violin is beautifully balanced, and listen to Folk's gossamer light accompaniment at 44 seconds as the violin takes the theme. Tetzloff phrases beautifully in this work. Folk then gets the theme in the bass at 110, and it's Tetzloff's turn to play the arpeggiated accompaniment. The gradations of volume in this performance are astonishing, and it saddens me to think that this great duo will not be heard in any new performances. Bright, lively playing and sound is heard after 3.30, and after that too. Schubert has filled this rondo with false cadences and sudden stops that often lead into gorgeous, slow, quiet sections, like the one following the false cadence in the fifth minute. As always with Schubert, the various melodies, even in the departures from the rondo theme, are memorable. The light, fast bowing leading to the cadence at around 1250, and the whole momentous approach to the prolonged ending is electrifying. This is a performance that will reveal new details in the piece and interpretation with each successive listen, and I personally have never heard it better performed than here. All 13 plus minutes are bathed in beautiful playing and sound.
Okay, we go on to CD2 and Piano Trio number two in E flat major, D929, also known as Opus 100. Schubert may be one of the few composers who works a very long, but you still love every minute of them because the melodies are so gorgeous and the orchestration and development are so inventive. Both piano trios put me in that place. Okay, now this piano trio, I thought, didn't... I, I got to say something about the interpretation of this because it's interesting, but um, in this case, I much preferred the Floristan and their lyrical approach much more than this performance. The opening of the Allegro in this performance is taken slowly, uh, but the cello melody following registers well. It's odd hearing it at this pace. It sounds rather deliberate, like folks, um, I heard um, Lars Falk's second Brahms piano concerto, which he himself conducted, and I thought it was a little too measured. And this is kind of sounding like that too. It's fine, but I'd rather hear these memorable melodies flow more. They feel like they're being held back here. And I think there's a reason for it too. In the booklet note, Christian and uh, Tanya Tetzlaff um, talk about this piece as having all the beauties of life in it with the constant understanding that it's all going to end and death is going to come to interrupt it all. And I think that this interpretation is going slowly because the musicians here want to stop or slow down and savor what's happening around them. Personally, I'm not so sure that this serves the piece really well, but it is an interesting and legitimate interpretation of the work. So let's just take it at that and say that I much prefer the Floristan Trio's interpretation of this to this particular recording. All right, that understood. Let's um, go on here. Despite the tempo, this movement is full of beautiful playing by all three trio members, and it maintains a sense of forward movement. Balances and the gossamer light lines are really wow-inducing. It's really incredible how quiet some of the sounds on this um, performance are. Listen to the cello note accompanying the violin at 250. We hear a repeat of the opening, and then at 7.15, deep into the movement, which is 16 minutes long, uh, the development section finally starts. There's a lot of space in this development section with the cello and violin intertwining slow-moving melodies and the piano rapidly sprinkling scales as accompaniment. I'm pretty amazed at how powerfully and clearly the fortissimo climaxes impact. At the 11 minute and 15 second mark, the recapitulation begins. Despite the slow tempo, it really does sound like Folkt is racing through his scale patterns. It's kind of an odd take on this movement. There's a lot of clarity in the phrasing, and every detail stands out. Now, I just thought, okay, they're doing this uh, movement slowly, but in fact, the entire work, all four movements, are taken at a slower tempo than we're familiar with if uh, you've heard this work played uh, many times before. The second movement is marked on Dante con Moto. It starts with a marching rhythm in the piano, which the cello plays over warmly and melodically. And the tempo again is slow, but it fits the music well in this case. Dynamics are extraordinary. The gradations of quiet playing between the instruments draw the ear in. The louder sections, as at 5 minutes and 5 seconds, again, amazing clarity with the strong attack, draw a lot of powerful emotion out of the music. At the end, the slow tempo leaves a lot of space in the very sparsely orchestrated material. I just want to say, um, this particular recording, the Floristan Trio does not achieve the kind of dynamic differences that uh, this ensemble does on this recording. It really is remarkable in that respect. The third movement, Scherzo, Allegro Moderato, uh, slower tempo again. I feel like the length of this work is a long time to be listening to the tempos at this slightly slowed down speed, no matter how beautifully the detail is projected. 
The ensemble rather takes the edge away from this movement, playing it for its elegantly dancing themes, which sometimes sound music box-like at this tempo. It's metronomic, but beautiful tone all around. The fourth movement, Allegro Moderato, my personal favorite movement of both um, Schubert um, trios, this was yeah, the most special as far as invention goes. Again, we've still got that slightly slow tempo. It brings out the curvature of the melody, but for the straighter lines, it rather hinders their energy. I did like the way the repeating theme starting at 122 with the rapid first line in the violin, then the cello came up. Listen to the way the violin's accompaniment is audible while the cello plays the line after a minute and 40 seconds. There's an excellent false cadence taken at 4 minutes and 10 seconds, and before that some powerful and lightly taken repeated notes produced by rapid bowing of the violin and cello. It's amazing how vividly these details of texture come up in the recording, as I've mentioned before. While I like the way we can hear every note in the piano pattern at 4.55 and after, this is more exciting at the faster tempo. Notice the violin pizzicati lightly taken during the cello's turn with the melody at 5 minutes and 20 seconds and after. This entire piece is being played so the quieter details can be brought out. Each instrument for the remainder of the work plays the repeated note theme in combination with variations on the accompaniment. I enjoyed the detail, a lot of which emerged to my ear for the first time, but throughout this work I missed the flowing tempo that, we, that I've gotten from other recordings. Okay, so not my favorite version of the work. Tracks 5 through 7 are the Arpeggione Sonata in A minor, D821. This one was written in 1824. It's a little earlier than the others. And I think this is the only duo performance that Tanya Tetzlaff and Lars Volk ever recorded together. And I'm glad to hear it. And glad they got to a chance to record one before Volk's untimely death. The Allegro Moderato, this is a three-movement work. The first movement, Allegro Moderato, track 5, features rich tone from Volk in the opening chords. This entire double album has great sound, but I'm going to have something to say about that soon. It's nice to finally hear Tanya Tetzlaff play in a duo performance, as she's got a rich tone herself and phrases sensitively. This has a rather romantic feel to it, with nicely placed rubato at the end of phrases. At 6 minutes and 13 seconds, we get not only a section change, but a change of overall sound on the piano's chords. Now, I was really curious about this. I should have listened to it again, because maybe I misheard it. But at 6.13, it sounds like there was an edit, and this part of the uh, piece was recorded on a different day with a different mic setup. It actually, the piano mm. actually sounds different here. It sounds um, brighter and at times harsher. And I'm wondering if um, Volk changes his approach or if it was recorded on a different day. I don't really know if he's trying to bring something out of this or if it's just the recording. The sound on the cello hasn't changed noticeably in this section. A pacing in the movement flows well with the constant cello figuration moving at a familiar pace. The slowing of tempo at the 11 minute mark and after is neatly done, and I like the sensitive approach and tone from both instruments here. The second movement, Adagio, is brief at four minutes and opens with piano chords followed by a typically lovely Schubert melody on the cello, legato and melodically long breathed. The piano sound is fine here, but it's not as upholstered as it has been on the rest of the recording up to the middle of the previous movement. The third movement, Allegretto, the movement is launched into directly from the end of the previous movement. It moves at a comfortable and highly appealing mid-tempo dotted eighth rhythm. This is a rondo, so we get a more active section after the opening, which settles back into the comfortable rondo theme in the third minute. A folk dance follows this iteration of the rondo. A more rhythmically aggressive section follows, then the final iteration 
of the Rondo theme. I actually did check the recording dates of this, and it was recorded over a, a period of four days. So mm. I don't really know what they recorded on what day. So this was a pretty mostly awesome recording and set of performances. I love these works to the skies, and this is certainly a recording I'll return to, like all of the Tetzloff folk recordings. That said, though, my preferred recording of this is still the Floriston Trio on uh, Hyperion Records. I think they recorded those in the 1990s. They're getting pretty old now. I'm glad the trio got to record these works, which are among my favorites. It's got gorgeously rich recorded sound and great performances all the way through, with the addition of the Arpeggione Sonata at the end. All of the music comes up sounding fresh, as is so often the case with the Tesla folk recordings. These guys had a unique way of interpreting music together. I absolutely encourage you to listen to all of their duo recordings. And this one's really worth listening to. And I would say especially for the uh, Christian Tesla and Lars folk performance of track six on CD1, the Rondo D895. Absolutely hear that. Yeah, I've listened to these trios quite a bit in different performances. Mm. Uh, in the spring, I don't know why I always get into listening to trios <laughs> over the spring. Yeah. I like this group, the Trio Wanderer, and they've got a pretty large uh, discography of recordings, and I've heard their performances. Yeah, that, that's not, I, I should mention, that's not this trio, but <laughs> you like uh, the Trio Trio Wanderer. Yeah, the Trio yeah, the, the Trio you Wanderer. Said it, it sounded like this was the no, recording no, no. by them. Who, yeah. who play a lot of uh, different trios, but these particular uh, Schubert Trio 1 and Trio 2. And who we might be hearing soon, by the way. They have a oh, new really? album out. Oh, wow. Well, not cool. it, of quintets, so it's the trio with oh, they, two yeah, they do. Musicians. They do expand sometimes. Anyway, yeah. I really like these versions. I thought they were passionate, uh, but very sensitive, especially to dynamics. Uh, there's so much detail, but I never felt it was indulgent, uh, which is you know yeah, a possibility not, yeah. with this very romantic and passionate music. But excellent phrasing. Like I said, the dynamics really stood out, and the tone is wonderful all around. And the recording helps all that by being warm and full-sounding, but yet the detail comes right through. So I thought it was uh, extremely enjoyable. So much, I just sat through it all in one listen, right through wow. the whole uh, two-disc <laughs> I took recordings. a few days yeah. for this. And I just really enjoyed it. <laughs> so I'll probably be coming back to listen to them again soon. Yeah, I'll probably hear them again soon, too. I I need this recording to kind of grow with me, as well as the other recordings that this duo and trio have right. made. Yeah, fantastic. Listen to them all. Just go through. If you have a streaming service, <laughs> download them all. There's only four or five. Hmm. And then there are two uh, other trio recordings by this trio. All right. The next part, I was kind of looking, I was holding on to this for a while, because today we are recording on Sunday, May 28th. And today is the Hungarian composer the deceased Hungarian composer, George Ligeti's 100th birthday. Oh. And uh, we've got a new recording of his um, string quartets called Metamorphosis by the Cator Diotima. And this is on the Pentatone label. So yes, George Ligeti, one of my favorite 20th century composers. Maybe, well, there are a lot of great ones. Let's say one of my favorite, my favorite post-war <laughs> composer. Okay, avant-garde composer. Anyway. This is an album of his two string quartets, and there's also an extra work, an earlier work, uh, his Andante and uh, Allegretto string quartet. The cover art on this album, this Pentatone album, features the uh, quartet, who consists of what looks like three middle-aged French guys and one very young-looking Chinese guy who's uh, who looks a lot younger than the, the rest of them. Although I've seen... Um, I don't know, he seems to have lost a lot of weight from earlier recordings because <laughs> I've seen his picture. He just kind of looked like one of the other guys in the original ones. 
Anyway, and they're standing in a what looks like the spaceship portal from 2001 A Space Odyssey hmm. uh, behind them, giving this uh, album a kind of spacey look, which I think probably isn't a um, bad sort of um, way to frame it, given uh, the way uh, String Quartet Number 2 sounds. We'll get to yeah. that when we talk <laughs> about it. There's a compelling brief essay in the CD booklet signed by the quartet uh, that describes their thoughts on these works, and they're pretty intricate. I'm going to leave that essay for you to read. They're detailed, they're intricate, they're they're not pretentious, but they're kind of getting close to that. They're, but they're, they're they're anchored in reality. Let's just say that they they explain mm. these works really really well. They make these works sound like uh, some magic is being performed, claiming that the music is on the edge of utopia. I rather liked the idea. Hmm. Anyway, the juxtaposition of raging gestures and melancholic expressions of transcendence and wry humor. Yeah, wry humor. That's a real feature of Ligeti's music. Of the sublime and the banal in both quartets aims to save the individual from its own alienation and annihilation via a dialectic. Okay, are you falling asleep yet, everybody? <laughs> We're talking about dialectics. This is like Hegel's philosophy class now. Thankfully. I went to college, and I kind of know what they're talking about. Of individual voices and voices merging into a texture. It refers to two differentiated forms of listening, and also to relations between individuals and society, between subjective expression and objective processes. So there's the individual, and then there's the society. You can almost think of it as being about what Star Wars is about. There's the Rebel Alliance, you have the, the Empire that's trying to change everything, and the Rebel Alliance is um, fighting for just a place to be in this changing world. I kind of feel like I'm in that situation myself. So maybe that's why Ligeti's music really relates to me. Anyway, that's something like that is happening in this um, recording. There's no synthesis or reconciliation uh, due to the irreparable massacres and totalitarianisms that Ligeti experienced firsthand. Yeah. Tracks 1 through 12 is string quartet number 1, titled Metamorphoses Nocturnes. This is written in 1953 to 1954, and um, Ligeti was living in Hungary at the time, which was under Soviet influence, and that's important to understand. There was a whole um, sort of way that you had to uh, compose at that time. Anyway, Bartok's influence is present in this uh, work through the use of folk music principles, and the uh, Diotima Quartet says performing this work requires a feverishness that's impressive even to them. Now, I'd say that's true of all of these uh, quartets. We must remember this work was written in Hungary two years before Ligeti was able to leave. And uh, his uh, escape was uh, really <laughs> something worth reading about. At the time, art had to be in accordance with the Soviet Party's directives, which meant it had to be healthy, edifying, and of the people. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, let's think about that. Healthy, edifying, of the people. Now, think about punk rock. Punk rock is of the people, but it's not healthy or edifying. <laughs> <laughs> we might think it is because it kind of makes us feel better, but uh, not in the sense that the Soviets meant. Okay, that's what I mean. This work is none of those things. So that means it goes one step beyond punk rock as far as I'm concerned. The title refers to a form of inner resistance. The political repression that had fallen over Hungary created a climate of terror, and the violence of the quartet is a clear reaction against it. Yes, it, you should really... One of the values of works like this is that they reflect the time and the period that they were in, and this is important for us to understand. We kind of think of... We don't really think of 
or a lot of people, I don't think of communism as a really bad thing. And uh, it, it really was a horror. And mm. it's funny, just ask anyone who lived under these regimes, and no one has anything good to say about it. The work was premiered in Vienna by the Remor Quartet in 1958, uh, after Ligeti had left Hungary in 1956, and the form of the work is based more on ruptures than on transitions. So it's 12 short movements. The first is marked Allegro Grazioso, and here the violin at the beginning plays a four-note chromatic motif. Remember that. It winds up building the rest of the quartet. Now it's chromatic, so it's a little hard to remember, but you can remember it by its sort of rhythmic shape hmm. that can help you, and the way it sort of winds you know, it's, it's, it's melodic shape as well. Ligeti says he was inspired by Beethoven's Diabelli variations, uh, but the work has a lot of bar talk in it too. And because that four note chromatic motif is really building the rest of the piece, it can be said to be related to um, the fifth of Mozart's quartets um, dedicated to Haydn and the fifth of Beethoven's Opus 18 quartets too, where you'd have one motif building the entire piece. So it starts pianissimo with rising scales crescendoing, and we hear the motif in the first violin playing on top of the scalar accompaniment. The motif spreads to other instruments, and the music, the movement reaches peak volume at the end and goes into the second movement, vivace, capriccioso. So this is capriccioso, which means like uh, just inventive or just spur of the moment creative or something like that, but in a very harsh way. The strings are really dug into. Now, this is a, it's a harsh sound, not something you're going to want to hear when you come home from a hard day's work, <laughs> but uh, I really like this sound, okay? So if you're fresh, I think you can really get into this. If you, if you listen to punk rock or loud rock music, you can really dig this, I think. The sound quality isn't very close, as I've heard on other recordings. A lot of recordings like to get really close to this so that it really just feels like your ear is a blackboard and the music is like fingers scraping your eardrum or something like that. We're not getting that here. We're not getting a really meaty sound, but we do get a well-defined one. I actually prefer the work to be heard this way. You can hear the detail better, and it's not like really just pushing you away. It's harsh sounding with slashing bows, yet the Diotima brings out a bit of musicality in this movement. The pacing is excellent, and uh, there's there are gorgeous ethereal sounds at a minute and 35 seconds. This is going to be a feature of um, a lot of these works. Third movement, Adagio Mesto. I don't think my friends would like this Adagio much. <laughs> anyway, it's a total contrast or disruption. It's got kind of a Bartok, a night music texture in the accompaniment. I'm trying one of the string quartets. The second um, piano concerto by Bartok has this kind of texture, if you want to hear what it sounds like. The middle movement. The violin soliloquizes above these really thin-sounding chords and slow-moving chords. The music is calm, though a bit anxious in the solo lines. Soon a duet with the cello starts. Patterns uh, being passed around the quartet are very easy to identify here. And in general, it's a clearly argued work despite its disruptions. Fourth movement, presto, disruption with a rhythmically lively leaping rhythm, nicely outlined by the quartet. This performance doesn't have the wildness I've heard from other ensembles, but I think I prefer this recording to the others now. The fifth movement is prestissimo. It has rushing motor rhythms in the accompaniment as certain of them step out and play more forwardly placed rushing lines. At the 38th second mark, there's a great contrast between the loud pizzicati and the very quiet accompaniment. Excellent balance and realization of the score here. Uh, the movement ends with dug-in bows drawing out some meaty tone, followed by a skittering bow on a single string. 
Sixth Movement, Andante Tranquilo. More Bartok night music here with a violin trilling quietly above. A more aggressive section appears in the middle, followed by faint trilling on the strings by the entire ensemble. Amazing realization of dynamics here and in other movements that we're going to hear as well. The seventh movement I rather liked, uh, Tempo di Vals. Actually, I like them all, but this one stuck out for me. Moderato con eleganza un poco capriccioso. Again, like uh, whimsical. It's got a kitschy sentimentality in it. Uh, the Walt, the sentimentality is magnified here, so it's got a bit of irony. And this is a good example of what musical irony is. The rhythm really sounds kind of drunken here, like it's a drunken waltz. Like the waltz had too much champagne. And it's a pretty amusing movement. Really different in character than what we've heard so far. Track 8, Subito Prestissimo, is a rupture with the previous section. It's a fierce peasant dance with an odd rhythm. Uh, the movement also, it sounds like it's changing from, it's changing beats with each movement. This movement also has a mysterious sounding nocturnal music reminiscent of Bartok at 40 seconds. Okay, and the movement ends with this, the, the Bartokian quiet part. Movement 9, Allegretto, un poco giovale. This has a pizzicato bass and an odd rhythmic pattern to it. It also has a bit of a drunken head spinning feeling to it. A pizzicato line appears at about 38 seconds with slashing bows accompanying. Movement 10, poco piumoso, emphatic tones at the beginning lead to a snapping string sound with ostinato patterns accompanying. On top, a violin plays a rough theme. There are lots of drunken glissandos at around the one minute mark. Then a very quiet repeating pattern in all the strings appears, crescendoing to the end. Track 11, or movement 11, Prestissimo, starts on Sul Ponticello playing in all the instruments. That's playing the bow close to the bridge of the instrument and it gives it a kind of ghostly, sort of out-of-body sort of sound. It's aggressive and exciting, and the cello seems to be responding in the upper strings when it comes in in the low end. The quiet is interrupted after the first minute by an explosion of aggressive lines. The movement ends with pizzicati. And then the final movement, ad libitum senza misura. Uh, at the beginning, the opening four-note chromatic motif returns in its original form, like a memory and it's wrapped in a shimmering fabric of harmonic sounds. Uh, the lyrical character of the motif is immediately distorted and caricatured, as if it were mocking itself. Ligeti actually indicates in the score that it's to be played with irony. From the minute 32nd mark, the theme reappears in the cello, but is interrupted by a sudden gesture from the four players, and the whole work is extremely polarized. So at the beginning, a glissando up to an aggressive pattern in all four strings, followed by a looping pattern on all strings, close to the threshold of hearing. Great technique here as far as dynamics go. The violin and cello play a quiet duet just above this. The cello at 120 sounds like it's being detuned as it plays. All kinds of interesting sounds are heard in this work. <laughs> at the uh, 207 mark, there's a loud upward slash of a chord followed by silence. The string harmony comes in very quietly as the violin and possibly viola play hushed lines. The work ends on a natural fade of this material. I think if you're in uh, living in a turbulent times, this is actually a good piece to hear because it'll kind of, um, it, it, it sounds like it's speaking truth. I think if we're living in peaceful times, people wouldn't like this so much, as much <laughs> unless they're li looking for something really harsh. But I would say give this a listen. It might uh, say something to you, no, no matter how unappealing <laughs> it may sound if you like, uh, if you listen to classical music for its beauty. Speaking of beauty, 
Hmm. Um, tracks 13 and 14 on the album, the Andante and Allegretto for String Quartet, were written in 1950, before the first String Quartet. And uh, this has the influence of Ligeti's teachers, Ferenc Farkas and Zoltan Kodai, the very famous Zoltan Kodai Bartok's pal, who did a lot of research into folk music as well. Also, Ligeti was working on Romanian folk music at the time, and that can be heard too. The melodic contours and harmonic structures are modal, with chromaticism and oh boy did i love these two works they don't really sound they do sound like ligeti but they're so mm. they're lovely really the first movement andante cantabile has beautiful modal harmony at the beginning of the work it sounds sort of folk-like it's played now with full tone so we're not hearing the uh skittering sort of tones that we heard in the first quartet and it's a good contrast with the first quartet throwing it into relief it's a calm, melodic movement with some folk song elements to the themes. You can hear a clear folk song melody at the two-minute mark. There are some beautiful full harmonies in this piece, contrasting with lighter, melodic sections. I found the lighter music at 3.20 and afterwards to be especially appealing. The harmony is generally played without vibrato, which gives it a pure, sort of churchy sound, like a faint organ at times. And the second movement, Allegretto, Poco Capriccioso, is that word capriccioso again, whimsical, whatever comes to mind sort of thing. The rhythm has a light and gentle dance feel to it, and I really loved the way that the diotima shaped the. It's very appealing on first listen. The quartet capture the rhythm well. All themes are easy on the ear and, in fact, very appealing. The work remains melodic with a slight swaying dance rhythm throughout. It's lovely. We even hear the opening theme repeated at the end in this traditional way. Okay, string quartet number two, written in 1968. The Diotima Quartet in the booklet note claims that this work unfolded the alphabet of the future, musically speaking. There's a contagiousness <laughs> in the writing in which anything emitted by an instrument is transmitted, affecting and infecting the other three instruments. I really couldn't have said it better myself. That's a really excellent way of putting it. Until no marks nor borders are recognizable. There are a lot of alternating sounds and textures in this work, and the five-movement structure is reminiscent of Bartok, and really also of Ligeti. He used this a lot. Okay, the first movement, Allegro Nervoso, you hear extremes right away. First, a loud pizzicato, like a pop of the string, then a very high-frequency scraping of the bow, which sounds kind of like it has no rosin on it, on the string, because it doesn't really produce a full tone. A loud screeching outburst, then very quiet drifting chords. This sort of loud, soft juxtaposition continues with some pretty intriguing sounds from the strings in the louder sections. Now, I want to say, this isn't so loud that it's going to blow you out of your chair, but I would not adjust my volume to the quieter sections. Let them be on the threshold of hearing where they belong, because if you turn it up too loud, you're really going to cause your hearing some damage when the loud sections come in. All loud playing is screechy and highly angular in this uh, movement, very avant-garde sounding. It's very anti-romantic and even anti-modern, given the modernism of the early 20th century. I love the harmonics at the end of this brief movement, too. The second movement, Sostenuto Molto Calmo, also begins very quietly. We can hear the microtones more clearly at the beginning of this movement. Okay, microtones are kind of notes, for example, on your piano, you have C, you have C sharp, and there's nothing in between that. But you can kind of edge off the C on a violin, and you get that microtone somewhere in the cracks of those two notes. You can notice this is happening because the pitches slightly waver in harmony with each other, and we hear that in this 
movement. The movement comes across as otherworldly and mysterious with the coldness and infiniteness of deep space. This movement put me in mind of the album cover with the, uh, <laughs> the 2001 Space Odyssey Tunnel. That's what I wrote too, space-generated noises. Yeah. There's some cool-sounding scratchy outbursts around the 2 minute and 20 second mark and sul ponticello tones after 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Deep space sounds continue to the end. The third movement is marked come un meccanismo di precisione, which means like a precision mechanism. The notes for this um, are pretty um, lengthy. They say pizzicato and bowed sounds alternate. Here, the material that was blurred in the first two movements due to microtonal derivations and rhythmic superimpositions that are very close but slightly out of sync is now systematized and laid bare. Each instrumentalist subdivides the time in similar proportions. The two against three, which is a pretty easy rhythm to play, extends to the superposition of groups of 12, 13, 14, and 15 16th notes. Oh man, I couldn't even imagine trying to measure this out. Anyway, it creates a rhythmic vibration of sound. Uh, you could describe the writing as the refusal of the four voices of the quartet to walk in unison, a resistance that causes organized chaos. So this is another brief movement. It's the shortest, actually, so far. It's 3 minutes and 14 seconds. It starts with pizzicati being played in juxtaposed rhythms, a preoccupation of ligatis that reached its apogee in his piece for 100 metronomes. There you go. I picked up that word apogee from earlier. <laughs> now, yeah, there's a piece by ligati. I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's you walk into the hall and there are 100 metronomes on a table on the stage and they're all ticking. And the piece is 20 minutes long. It's all of them winding down. And as they wind down, they produce these sort of micro rhythms with each other. And it's right. actually really cool to listen to. It's sort of a, you know, it's not an interpreted piece, but he's sort of doing something. He's imitating that sound here, I think. I, I've least... got the feeling on this one, like uh, mm -hmm. after rain, when uh -huh. you're listening to drips from multiple locations and they're at different tempos that, you know, they will overlap and then vary. Yeah. It sounded very natural to me, like something in, in the environment, yeah. Yeah, we heard a recording that did that recently, right. too. I can't remember which one it was, though. Anyway, it was certainly a, a modern one, though. Was it Carolyn Shaw? It might have been, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Alpha one, that's right. right, okay. Yeah, oh, speaking of which, they never sent me that uh, CD, oh. <laughs> Alpha. <laughs> anyway, I still have the one with the mixed-up track order on it. Okay, anyway, some of the pizzicati sounds are muted and sound almost lute-like. Listen at the one-minute mark for that. This is rhythmically what the previous movements were tonally, micro-rhythms instead of microtones in the harmony. Most of it occurs at the threshold of hearing. I'm not sure how some of these sounds are being produced, but towards the end, the pizzi get a raindrop effect. I, that's what you said. Right. And there are other unusual sounds as well. The fourth movement, uh, Presto Furioso, Brutale. Tubultuoso. <laughs> oh, I really love it when a, <laughs> a piece of music is marked brutal. I actually made a joke <laughs> about this in my novel, Extreme Music. <laughs> this, guy, this guy writes a work. There's even a work by Bartok called Allegro Barbaro. Oh. <laughs> Barbaric Allegro. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. It's a great piece, though. I, yeah, but just the title is kind of makes you kind of hmm. lean back a bit, you know, kind of put your shoulders up a bit. Anyway, this uh, movement is the opposite of the second movement. The previous movement had to be balanced, and here it is. It's not so presto, but it is harsh, 
but not off-puttingly so. Diotima has a way of making all of this sound musical. There are sections of chords at the edge of hearing, but don't turn up the volume or your head may be blown off by the harsh fortissimi. <laughs> uh, this movement is very brief at almost two minutes. It's the shortest movement in the quartet. The fifth movement, Allegro con Delicatezza, is a gentle variant of the first movement and starts with juxtaposed micro-rhythms sounding a bit like bees buzzing around the hive. There are also micro-tones in here too. There was a real preoccupation with rhythmic variety in the 20th century, and now that we don't hear much of it, I find it all intriguing, especially in this work. The opening is very quiet again and not played in full tone, but with the bows skittering over the strings lightly. The recording captures these intensely quiet levels of playing exceptionally well, with little room noise around the sounds, which is really remarkable. There are one or two outbursts, but the movement is generally preternaturally quiet, like signals from deep space. It ends on a light upward glissando, barely audible. Anyway, the Diotima Quartet goes for precision more than excitement on this recording, and I'd say it pays off, giving excitement in a different, less aggressive, but still aggressive, way than previous performances I've heard, which sometimes came across as noisy. It really pays off in the second quartet, this approach, where precision is key to the work's comprehensibility. The ensemble are capable of a variety of sounds, and I like an ensemble that'll make an ugly sound because ugly sounds can be thrilling, as they sometimes are here, especially in the second quartet. The Diotima have made their career playing and recording avant-garde music and are ideal interpreters here. Some listeners may prefer the cacophony of older recordings, but for me, this is the best we've heard of these works so far and are unlikely to be surpassed in the next 20 years. So this album is a keeper for these works, and I'm sure George Ligeti on his 100th birthday would be very pleased. Certainly, these are aggressive compositions, and I thought played perfectly to match. They seem to get the mood that is uh, intended by some of the harshness but very exactly. Uh, it's mm. interesting for the variety of techniques and then the resulting sounds that you don't <laughs> quite expect from a yeah. group of strings. And I really found myself wishing I was watching what they were doing. Exactly, yeah. How are they it's, doing that sound? It you know? seems visual as well as like, you know, just yes. listening. Yeah, you want to see this too. Maybe there's a maybe there's a video on uh, YouTube. I'll have to check. Yeah, I'd be interested to see. Otherwise, the harmony can be harsh, but the compositions are kind of playful and explorative, yeah. going in different directions that are interesting. So you get pulled through following along and wondering what's next. And overall, the programming is nice. I found the Andante and Allegretto make a softer, creamy center to the recording between the crunchy quartets. So you can uh, (laughs) chill out for a little bit before you get back on the uh, interesting techniques and harsh sound. uh, Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the playfulness too. Um, The post-war kind of um, serial music composers weren't playful types. They were deadly serious and their music uh, often was boring. (laughs) Some of it was really great. But Ligeti, it's even despite the the horrors of like uh, living under the Soviet regime for his childhood and later and his kind of harrowing escape from it, he seems to have always kept his like kind of this sort of playfulness to him, this sort of childlike uh, thing despite the high intellectuality of his music. So it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition and i'm just really appreciate him for that he's almost a person that can show us how to live in difficult times hmm. you don't get like any sort of uh ill intent coming through the music <laughs> even with the 
the strange sounds. It's rather interesting, you know, kind of like exploring what these techniques will do and then relating the different sounds again to what comes in the program. So it, yeah, it doesn't come off as sounding uh, dangerous, but rather, yeah. you know, enjoyable. In my novel, Extreme Music, there's one, which you can buy on Amazon, by the way. Um, there's a character who's, he's a composer, and he, he, all of his music is written to annoy his parents. That's his, his whole purpose. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, that's not like this, though. No. Yeah, go. check it out. Uh, you got to yeah. be in the mood for something adventurous, though. But uh, yeah. I was that day, and I had a good time with it. I liked it, too. I was really pleasantly surprised by this album. I'll definitely revisit it. All right, over to the jazz section now, and we're going to go one, two, three. We're going to reset and build up with our only solo recording of this week's podcast. And interestingly enough, that's what it's called, solo. Ah. And it's on Sunnyside Records. It's by the pianist Benny Green. It came out May 12th. Now, who's Benny Green? Well, he's uh, 60 years old now, born in New York, but he grew up in California, got turned on to jazz by listening to his father's record collection. His father was a sax player, by the way. And he played a bit with Bobby Watson and Betty Carter. But I first heard of him because he joined up with the great Art Blakey became one of the jazz messengers right through till 1989. And then he went off to play with uh, Freddie Hubbard with his quintet. And so I was listening to a lot of Art Blakey and Freddie Hubbard back in those days. And while his recording career has gone on to more than 100 sessions, and uh, among many others, he's played with, uh, who else can we list? Milt Jackson, Diana Kroll, Ray Brown's Trio, and others. And he has recorded uh, one previous solo disc, uh, Green's Blues, back in 2001. But this one sort of comes out of isolation during uh, the COVID period, where I guess all musicians were playing pretty much by themselves a lot. And so he focused on working on solo material. And now he's kind of continued with that. And uh, he's been performing solo recently. And he did this recording. And rather than on any great technical show off things, he wanted to focus on working on his best in performance with some mid-tempo tunes and ballads. And I think this is a really great collection. And I really want to recommend this recording. Anyone who's like studying jazz piano and you want to, Hmm. you know, get inside how tunes are approached and just played really well. And it's a real nice mix of material from some of his uh, piano heroes and other great piano players. And so let's just jump right into it with the first tune, which is called Soulful Mr. Timmons. And that would be the great Bobby Timmons, who played with Art Blakey and Cannonball Adderley. But the tune is written by James Williams as a dedication to another jazz messenger. I think this was recorded originally on Art Blakey's uh, recording album of the year, 1981. What's a great minor bluesy tune, and what Green does with it here is give it a lot of cool added space. It's an AABA 32 measured tune, but 
he starts it out using the B section for an intro and then creates anticipation with space right after the first glissando that you'll hear. <laughs> you'll be waiting for what comes next. It gets off swinging with a nice alternating bass note and chord left hand accompaniment pattern and Green switches that up with some blockier chords on the way. His improvisations are relaxed and playful, switching up to walking bass left hand in spots. It's a nice balance of bluesiness and melodic lines in his soloing, and he finishes it up with another melody run and some nice extra chords at the end. Track two is called The Maestro, that would be in reference to Duke Ellington, and it's kind of a tribute to him from Cedar Walton, great pianist. This one has lush rolling chords and a relaxed but definite forward push to it. A pretty melody reminding you of the classiness of Ellington's playing with a nice touch on the repeated notes in the lines. I like the variety of more delicate chords, bass notes, and arpeggios in the left hand that make a contrast with the thicker, blocky moving chords in there as well. Green's improvised lines are smooth and flowing. And then getting back to the melody, Green makes a great ending setting things up with some syncopated rhythmic chords and then some rising rolling right hand figures pretty final chiming notes track three is his own original tune just called jackie mclean so written for the saxophone great and i guess green liked his classic blue note recordings and they have a lot of cool horn interactions in them. And right from the start, with a cool left-hand syncopated ostinato bass and little turning figures in the right hand for an eight-measure intro, the melody is minor, bluesy, and playful over a nice change-up of a descending bass figure and chords. Lots of fun space in this one, too. Sounds like 20 measures before a revisit to the intro idea with a left-hand break into improvising. Great swinging right-hand ideas, keeping that little turning idea alive over changing left-hand, sometimes minimal, sometimes bringing back the ostinato, and sometimes walking. Uh, he finishes it up with another melody run and an outro to match the intro into a final thick chord and chime. Yeah, you know, this um, all those quick changes of texture and rhythm in this particular track kind of... It's kind of like he's a little bit of a CPE Bach in there, too. Yeah. You like that. <laughs> yeah. And just, just change it up, track. keep it interesting. Yeah. Track four, a Horace Silver tune, Lonely Woman. Oh, well, Green oh, yeah. keeps it close to the original Silver version, but stretched a bit for more solo examination. It's slow, lush, and pretty along the way with rolling chords, but he makes it rhythmically interesting too with more choppiness in the chords. Silver's compositions are sometimes oddly structured, and this one has a really very short three measure B section, uh, and green adds nice descending chimes. Uh, the last section gets some more pretty ascending and then falling lines to a pause, then once more getting some rhythmic flow to a final rising line and chord. Very tasty playing here. Well, then we're going to go right to a Bobby Timmons tune. Everyone knows this one, I think, if you're even a little bit of a jazz fan. This here. And so this kind of bluesy swing of Timmons playing got into Green's consciousness when he played with Art Blakey. And everyone should know this one, too, from Cannonball Adderley's Live in San Francisco recording, too. And only someone as funky as Bobby Timmons could have a song called This Here and another tune called that there. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. <laughs> just uh, simple funkiness there. 
Green gives it a relaxed feel and you enjoy the infectious riff. I like the choppy left hand on the contrasting section. Green has some harmonic fun with the bass under uh, improvised lines, alternating with more funky chord sections. He gets rollicking, a bit boppy, some fun triplet lines in there too, and percussive chords as well before hitting the melody again. Great bluesy descending line and final cadence to wrap up the tune. Then we're going to go into monk mode with Thelonious Monk's Ruby My Dear. I guess he listened to a lot of monk when he was uh, young in his father's record collection. And this is one of monk's prettier pieces, you know, monk's quirky as well. But this one is really uh, beautiful uh, writing. It's smooth, rollicking, beautiful chords that contrast with more block chord movement. Interesting bass lines too. I said rollicking. I think I meant rolling beautiful chords. Mm. Uh, interesting bass lines. The tempo stays steady, but the rhythmic feel transforms from leisurely to lilting, and then some swinging snap to Green's improvised lines. So a nice ending with a descending run, two hands synced for a moment, and then going their separate ways to opposite ends of the keyboard is <laughs> a nice little hmm. effect there. Another great pianist, Tommy Flanagan's Minor Mishap, and this one's Track seven, a fun bluesy minor melody that keeps pushing forward. It's an AABA form and get your ear tuned into Green's left hand to check out the cool descending bass figures on the A sections and then the rising lines on the B. Green's improvisations are snappy and I like how he changes up the left hand from lazy to fast walking and it really gets grooving. And check out how he downshifts it right before getting back to the melody and the final synced two hand racing line. Uh, track eight, this is a real highlight of the recording for me, uh, McCoy Tyner's Sunset. McCoy Tyner could, you know, he was really inventive, but sometimes he wrote really beautiful pieces. This is one of them. Uh, it comes from his first solo recording, Inception, on Impulse, 1962. And I actually like Green's version better than the original, just because mm -hmm. uh, the, being solo, you can focus uh, right in on it. And uh, speaking of kind of synced up lines. There are plenty here, along with descending trickles, rolling and flowing chords before a section of descending bass intervals under chords that gives it a steady motion into a more striding feel uh, before a return to the rolling lines. Now, the original is great. As I said, it's got this bowed bass beginning, but I really love the relaxed flowing interpretation, and it's just gorgeous and shows off Green's gentler touch, uh, a different side of his playing. Track 9 is one of Green's originals called Blue Drew, and this is for Kenny Drew, the pianist. Another infectious riff tune here. It's uh, so much fun. It's like a 12-bar blues with a two-measure extension to 14 measures. Check out the choppy alternating bass patterns on the repeat that Green keeps going under his improvisations, which follow just a 12-bar blues pattern. Great bouncy, bluesy fun, and melodic ideas here. Track 10, Rogue. This is a Barry Harris tune. Another unhurried ballad with great harmonies and a descending chord pattern that becomes familiar. It's thick and lush, but Green makes it also smooth. He comes out with like a nice lilt to his phrases over the repeating A section in his improvisation on the second run through, bringing it back to the melody again on the B section and the final A. And there's a final coda of chords and a lovely upward trickle to finish it off. And the recording ends 
with a short piece, just about less than two and a half minutes. He has gone. It's an Oscar Peterson tune that he wrote for his son. It's another gorgeous treatment, showing off Green's soft, ringing touch on the high register melody notes and lush, warm chords. And I like how he lets phrases just hang before more waves come underneath gently. It's short, sublime, and tasty. So I thought it was a wonderful solo recording. Green's relaxed throughout, even when he's funky. And there are plenty of funky tunes. Those are balanced out by some lush ballads. Everything's imbued with a great sense of space. There's no showing off, no need for it. What we get here is touch and taste, great confidence and feel. Green's improvisations are melodic with interesting and varied left-hand accompaniment, and that keeps you surprised throughout. Well, Green honors piano jazz giants with their compositions and a couple of fine ones of his own. I, I like this album a lot too. And uh, the thing that kind of I was thinking about when I was listening to it is um, I remember this um, quote by uh, Salvador Dali that he had said that he had, um, or someone had said that he mastered all the styles of painting that went before him mm-hmm. before he kind of came up with his own, like so he could paint in any style. And I kind of had that feeling listening to this album. It sounds like he's got a lot of. Uh, like jazz roots, like styles that he can put across. And um, he has a lot of sides to him. Let's yeah. say there's a lot of solo swing, which I really love. You, know, you don't hear that enough these days on solo piano recordings. So I'm always happy to hear that. It's always such a good feeling. There's a lot of uh, quick changes of texture, rhythm, harmony, and everything else. This really put me in the mind of Monk, who kind of was uh, similar. You can kind of tell the, the Monk influence in his play yeah, sure. really strongly. Yeah, it's an appealing album. Um, I thought he has a Monk style. He's not as quirky as Monk himself was, though. I guess he can be if he wants to be. But he has a great feel for the rhythm and harmony. It's good to hear the style in solo piano playing in this day and age. Yeah, I enjoyed this a lot. Check it out. Next stage, Duo. And this is another great recording I think you're going to want in your collection here. This is called Danish Rain. It's on Storyville Records. came out. May 19th, and the duo is the great Danish bassist Thomas Fonsbach. Yeah, who we're big fans of on yeah. this um, podcast. American pianist Justin Coughlin. Now, Fonsbach, we've heard a number of times, uh, going back to episode 23, something old, something new, clarinet and piano jazz vocals too. That was back when we had long titles for some reason. Um, and that was with uh, Staying <laughs> in Touch. that would be the way to go, yeah. Yeah, and Stunt Records. Also a duo with uh, Sin Eeg, very fine vocalist, and uh, Fonisbeck on bass. Uh, so just voice and bass. It's a lovely recording. And then we heard him in episode 63, one of our favorites, Piano Paisans, a bunch of Italian <laughs> <laughs> pianists. And that was with yeah. Enrico Piernunzi, the great yeah. Italian pianist and another duo recording. He just seems to work really well in uh, you know the duo format. That's because he's more than a regular good bassist. Uh, he's something special. Now, how about yeah. Coughlin? I don't know how we've avoided uh, a Coughlin recording on the podcast uh, so far. I was aware of him. I just guess timing for whatever programming we picked uh, didn't uh, line up. But you're going to be pleasantly surprised by the piano playing on this recording. He's born in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and moved to Virginia with his family. He studied classical music, uh, violin and piano at the age of six. Unfortunately, uh, he lost his eyesight at the age of 11, but uh, that has not diminished anything about his musical brilliance. He came to New York City in 2008 at the age of 23 and uh, performed on his first album, introducing 
Justin Coughlin. He was also taken under the wing of the great jazz trumpeter Clark Terry. And I guess there's a documentary movie about this called uh, Keep On Keeping On, which is at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2014. Uh, so if you're interested, check that out. He's performed with his own trio since 2011 across the U.S., and uh, he also was a semifinalist in the Thelonious Monk competition in 2011. Get a number of recordings of his own out now, as well as, it seems like, two Christmas recordings. He's got the Silent Night Christmas Candy. I think that's a shorter one. And uh, mm-hmm. Coming Home, Synesthesia, Standards, and he's got a live recording out as well. So definitely a pianist you're going to want to check more out about. Standards is with uh, Thomas Fosbank, too. Oh, right. Yeah, they've recorded before. And this is a great program of compositions here. Some interesting choices, as well as a couple of brilliant originals, which is what we're going to start out with, the title track of Fonisbach, composition Danish Rain. And Fonisbach has a rhythmic figure made of bass harmonics that he starts right away and uh, continues on with. It's really quite hypnotic. Think like rhythmic raindrops or something, uh, as we had mentioned on the previous recording. Coughlin plays some high register trickles, a glissando, and little figures before getting into the melody. And Fonisbeck's figure is unchanged, becoming kind of like a pedal tone, but he switches up after 24 measures to snappy syncopated figures. There seems to be another 36 measures of melody with different movement. The repeated piano notes give it a sense of gentle motion, and the phrases are very uplifting. Coffin decorates with rhythmic chords to the bass pulse, then it resets to the bass harmonics and start of the melody, and they go through the sections again into some improvisations from Coughlin. Feinsbach's bass groove is awesome below. Coughlin's ideas are harmonically adventurous, and his chords have little dissonances, but it's happily playful with a gentle touch in the high register. He gets into some smooth flowing lines, too. They bring it down into a rhythmic and soft vamp together. Then the bass harmonics return for a final run through the melody and final rain-like rhythmic play from Coughlin over the bass harmonics. It's a very pretty and enchanting start to the recording. Here's our standard of the recording, Hmm. Everything I Love by Cole Porter. Now, remember last week? Who did we mention last week? What did we say? Danny Kay. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Danny Kay. God. This tune was first performed live by Danny Kay and Mary Jane Walsh in 1941, and it was recorded by Glenn Miller uh, later in the same year. Coughlin starts it out here solo on the piano with a rubato but flowing opening. His phrases build up and flow like waves into each other. Fonsbach joins in with a snappy bass chug for a steady tempo. Things get swinging through the melody. Fonsbach solos first. Great tone, attack, and melodic lines. Check out the speedy triplet figures in there. Then Coffin has a solo that also really swings. And talk about triplets. There's some really cool melodic lines full of them. He plays with a real lightness and flow, but works it up into a more rollicking ending with trills before bringing it down soft for another run through the melody. Fonsbach has some great fills and answering lines this final time through, and they've come up with a very cool unison line before the last chord. I thought it's a very classy take on this old standard tune. Next, Chikuria tune, Windows. This tune Hmm. actually uh, goes back to 1966. It was first recorded under a different title, but now you can find it. You may actually have it if you have his famous uh, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs recording. Uh, when that came out on CD 
1988. They had extra tracks, and Windows is one of those. A solo piano star on this one as well, rubato and flowing, but Coughlin gets the tempo and rhythm going himself before Fonsbach joins in. There's a lot of great interplay between the two in the melody here with great ringing deep bass, and Fonsbach gets a section of the melody as well. Coughlin's solo here is a great flow in his right hand over lightly choppy chords in the left, with some cool synced up ideas for both hands in there as well. Fonsbach's solo has a lot of reaching lines into the upper register, all with snappy attacks, and they get back to the melody with some interesting differences, uh, a little pause, and some fun hesitated little piano chord figures. More rhythmic improvisation from Fonsbach and some dizzying piano lines from Coughlin before a slowed and stretched ending with cool descending bass lines and piano figures of waves. Track four is a tune by American bassist Steve Swallow. It's called Falling Grace. And Fonsbach takes the lead here with the melody and into improvisations. This tune has an interesting structure. It's a 24-measure melody, but the first section is 14 measures and the second is 10 measures. And you can feel that change if you listen to the chord, the cadences in there. Coughlin takes a light and bouncy start to his solo. It gets a great bouncy feeling from the bass, which switches up between walking and snappy lines. And uh, his lines become longer and more connected in the piano solo. Fonsbeck gets some more solo time uh, in there too. Track five is Michel Legrand's tune, You Must Believe in Spring. Uh, this is kind of a popular song written by Michel Legrand and Jacques Demy for the 1967 French film, uh, The Young Girls of Roquefort, and of course also recorded on Bill Evans's album of the same title, 1977. Coughlin makes a piano intro for Fonsbach to take the melody with great rubato ringing notes. Uh, he really makes it sing, and Coughlin takes the final section with lush rolling chords to a hold. They take another round with more improvisations. It's hard not to include a lot of the gorgeous melody when you're playing through this song, even when improvising. And Fonsbach comes back to it before Coughlin has some unhurried flowing lines of his own to a ringing ending. Very nice take. Track six, an Oscar Peterson tune, uh, this one from his uh, 1981 Nigerian Marketplace uh, recording, and one of his more well-known tunes, Cakewalk, and it's a happy, bouncy tune. Listen to the interplay of the bass figures with Coughlin's chords on the melody. It's an AABA structure with an extra two measures at the end. Fonsbeck switches up to walking for the solos, and things swing furiously as they should on a Peterson tune. Coughlin is up to the task himself with great connected melodic ideas and choppy chords with a few jabbing piano bass note surprises. Fonsbach is bursting with bouncy ideas too, snapping everything to the groove and ending up with a bluesy lick before they trade eights for a few rounds letting the notes fly. Once more around the melody to wrap it up. So much positive swinging energy in this one. Track 7, John Lennon's Imagine. Now you might think... You don't need to ever hear this song again, but Fonsbach right. will change your mind right away with this cool ostinato of ringing low tones and harmonics above it. Coughlin joins in sync with chords for a round, making it very hypnotic. Fonsbach takes the melody too and lets it ring out in a yearning way. Coughlin gets the start of the next time around and Fonsbach gets back to the ostinato before returning to the melody and chorus. 
Coughlin solos first and makes it dreamy with short, simple phrases into chiming ideas, and then smooth, flowing lines that stretch up high and become rhythmic waves. He gets back to the melody with some interesting fills between phrases before they bring it down soft for Fonsbach's phrases from the Imagine All the People kind of pre-chorus line. And after a solo descending bass line, Coughlin gives it a delicate piano ending. So I actually enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, that's what jazz is meant uh, for. It can reinvent these songs that you've just had enough of. It's really great. Now we're going to get Coughlin's original contribution, uh, Country Fried. And this is a very fun and interesting mm. tune. The melody has interesting moving chords and some kind of Beatles-like quality. I don't know why, but after I heard this song, I kept thinking of I'll Follow the Sun. And I think it might just oh, be the, the quirky chord movements. But there's also a little bit of Bach in there. Uh, you'll hear in some of the little cadences. And of course, there's a mix of uh, that country feel uh, and it, a lot of change-ups. So there's a repeating 10-measure section, then a three-measure transition of chords, and then you're into a 12-bar blues progression. Fonsbach is uh, up to the plate for an energetic hoedown uh, with some <laughs> uh, speedy lines and interval ideas. Coughlin makes it more rollicking as Fonsbach gets a walking bass going. And check out how the feel and tempo changes up in fun ways as they go along. They pull it back into the original tempo for another round of the melody, where it went into the blues after the first transition. This time, Coughlin makes it into waves of piano and some dazzling final runs to an emphatic low ending note. Very fun. We're going to end up with a Herbie Hancock tune, Driftin'. This is from his uh, debut album as a leader, Taken Off, 1962. It's a fun and bluesy AABA tune, uh, but it starts out with these two eighth notes chord hits that are on like the fourth beat before the A section. So it, right from the beginning, it makes you wonder where you are. <laughs> in the tune but then you catch on as it goes around that cycle they have a great relaxed groove with Fonsback digging in on the bass and check out the huge upward glissando at the end of the B section on the bass it just hangs there and fills up the gap Coughlin solos first great bluesy and gospely lines some stabbing bass notes trills smooth speedy runs percussive chords it's all in there in this solo and then Fonsback is bluesy and rhythmic with some speedy runs, too. They take it once more around the melody to finish up. So two musicians perfectly in sync and of one mind here on this recording. The tune selection's intriguing, a standard, originals by Piano Giants and a bass great, plus their own two originals. Coughlin's Country Fried is fun and inventive, and Fonsback Danish Rain is very pretty and intriguing. Fonsbeck is more than a great bassist. He can drive grooves, make melodies sing, and come up with ringing ostinatos and ideas that just fill out a song's atmosphere. And Coughlin's amazing here as well. A light and fluid touch on melodies and solos, strong swing evoking earlier piano styles, bluesy and funky, creative improvisations, and intriguing chord voicings. I think I want this one for my collection. Yeah, I think I do too. Another thing about Thomas Fonnesbach that you said he seems to appear a lot on uh, duo recordings, yeah. like he's the bass and piano. And you got to wonder, because um, we, we love the one that he did with Enrico Pieranonzi too. Yeah, it was great. And he did one with uh, Sine Ig, the uh, singer, right? She, yep. um, so it's a, that's a duo as well. That's her yeah. and just the bass. So you got to wonder if it's it's not him that's kind of giving that extra magic that's making those other players like stand out even more. Although we have heard like, Pierre Nunzi on his own 
uh, too. Yeah. We like that as well. But uh, yeah, he's got a little bit of magic to him, and I already know I like him. So he transcends just a baseline. You know, he yeah. he can do so many things that fill out the space with other kind of harmonics and rhythmic type of things. It's it's really more than just playing with one person. He's got some kind of magic. I think if I was going to study the uh, jazz bass, I'd want to study with him because he seems yeah. to have something. Yeah. Um, so for me, though, because I already knew I liked his um, playing, the, and the discovery for me was uh, Justin Coughlin. Right. Great sense of melody and melodic invention. Mm. And um, he'll have these turns of phrase that could be themes themselves a lot. I really like that about him. And his playing uh, pulled me in, and the two play off each other really well, as you would imagine. I thought Fonisbank was more active and energetic in his playing on this album than I've heard him in the past. May, I think maybe he might be drawing that energy from Kauflin. Mm, could be. Uh, the two can really swing when they decide to do so, and it usually comes as a surprise. I was just smiling all the way through this. Yeah. And I also want to mention, they have two other duo recordings together, these two. One of them is uh, Standards, and the other one is called Synesthesia, and they're both from the uh, 2010s. Right. So I might have to check those out too. Boy. My wallet's feeling really light. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want to hear more of Coughlin's playing because uh, he's got that real magical yeah. sense of touch. And we got those two Christmas albums to look forward to yeah. later this year. We'll so. Put those in with uh, Gabriel Lashin's one that we missed from the year before. And we'll have a start for yeah. piano recordings. And let's hope something new and swinging comes out for Christmas jazz this year. Always looking for that. All right, we're going to end up with the trio, one, two, three, and uh, boy, I just uh, took a shot on this uh, recording, a player I never heard of before, and it's hard to find much about, and uh, from France, now let's see, I guess his French pronunciation would be uh, Georges Granville, something like Granville, that. Granville, yeah, I guess yeah, so. Granville. Yeah. Georges. Not to be confused, now that's Georges <laughs> with an S, There, there is an American a keyboard player of note named George Granville, or I guess in New York they huh. would say George Granville. Or yeah, there you like go. That. But we want to make sure that this uh, should be said in uh, probably a French pronunciation. <laughs> I'm just thinking of um, there's a um, a woman in the mo the Jacques Tati movie, um, the Mister Hulot's Holiday, where uh, this woman is yelling at her husband. His name is George. He's French, so she's just saying George. <laughs> so just I always think of that when I hear this name, George. He's <laughs> just came to mind. Yeah, and this is the only uh, recording of his I can find on any kind of uh, discography site or streaming as a leader. But it, he supposedly has a 25-year career as a, a collaborator with uh, a lot of French jazz performers. And uh, the other other thing I could find about his background is that he is a student of the Bill Evans Piano. Academy, and he claims for his influences Lyle Mays, Avishai Cohen, and Chick Corea. And here he is in this trio, Perspectives. This came out May 19th on the Samanea Productions label. Granville's got all of the compositions here except for one. On the drums, Arnaud Domain and also Michel Alibo on bass. And I believe Domain showed up on another recording we did. That was uh, Keep French in Me, Baby, I think he's on uh, that, or French Me, Baby, one of the uh, French, the famous French episodes. Um, one of the French episodes, yeah. episodes, yeah. Right. So this is all original compositions 
all intensely rhythmic with really interesting structures. I only had a couple hours to listen to this, so I'll just uh, outline them as best I can. Uh, if you like rhythmic music, you're going to really enjoy uh, this trio. Uh, so the first track is Mazuka-like, and hmm. Granvier gets it started with a repeating two-measure syncopated alternating pattern of three notes and a chord. This goes around for eight measures, and then the bass and jumps join in for another round. And he puts a sparse right-hand melody on top of that that goes through some different eight-measure sections, like a repeated A section, there's a modulated B section, and then a new C section that gets into some ringing chords and stretches to some ringing improvised bass lines from Alibo with a cool modal start to it. It flows free with dancing cymbals for a while and chord accents from Granvia, and he takes a piano solo next over throbbing bass from Alibo, a bounce in his lines and punchy chords. There's nice fills and accents from Dolmel, and it comes down to some ringing chords, making a reset for the intro rhythmic pattern and back to the melody, ringing chords, high repeated piano notes for an ending. I like the contrast between the rhythmic pattern groove and then the more kind of free flow that they give it in the solos. Track two, Baia. A rhythmic and flowing piece, Grenvia starts it out with waves of notes under the melody. Bass and drums join in before the end of the first 20 measure section that repeats. There are interesting pauses in the flow as it goes along. There's a contrasting next section that gets a lift of chiming chords, more pauses on chords. And then we hear the two sections again into a piano solo that gets a throbbing bass groove under it. And Granville has individual notes that repeat and ring out, mixing in rhythmic chords and some zippy runs. And they reform together on the B section of the melody into a final A part to finish it up. Some interesting drum scratches under the final piano trickles right at the end of the tune. Track three, Azim, A-Z-Y-M. And this one starts with a syncopated zigzaggy left-hand piano line that's going to make you dizzy. Uh, bass joins in unison, and then Dolman cracks in on the drums while Granvia adds in punctuated chords. Uh, they work it to a clean break. And then Granvia has a pickup note to a restart with a melody over busy subdivided kind of uh, Latinish beat to it. There's a 16 measure melody of lines and then a nine measure section that brings back the crazy intro zigzaggy line. And then the first section again and a new 16 measure section. Uh, Alibo gets a really throbbing line going uh, for a piano to improvise over with some interesting harmonic uh, directions in his lines and some Cubanesque rhythms thrown in there too. Uh, he brings it back into the melody idea and into some syncopated vamping with bass for Dolman to work around the drums on uh, with some tight and powerful hits. And then they bring the zigzag opening bass line back underneath all of that to a big finish. Uh, this tune is a real adventure in rhythms. Track four, Yella. And Granville starts this one out solo as well. Another interesting rhythmic idea for the melody that has little two-note phrases over left-hand patterns of an alternating bass note and chord figures in a kind of 3-3-4 three, three, pattern. It's 16 measures, and then bass and drums join in for another round. There's a hold and pause into a slower-moving new section that alternates with the pulsing 3-3-4 three, three, feel from before. 
some more pauses in there. It's interesting and unpredictable in its uh, development. There's some nice ringing bass lines in unison and as answers to the piano. It takes another push with the rhythm in the second half of the tune with vocalizations of Yela added softly on top. Dolman builds it up with fills and hits until it comes down softly for the ending with some short bowed bass notes underneath. Track 5, Zwell. This tune just explodes out of the gate with forward pushing syncopated notes and zipping bass and left hand answering lines. Uh, there's a repeating 18 measure section and then a transition section where the time kind of suspends for a moment and then it pushes into improvised piano, taking on speedy swing groove with it and uh, walking bass and dancing cymbals. Uh, Granvier is really flying in his solo lines here, but mixes it up with some playfully rhythmic chords. And Alibo gets a pulsing bass solo as well before Granvier takes it over again uh, with more lines back into the exploding melody section. And then, well, we can't stay away from Beatles uh, too much uh, this week. We're going to get the, yeah. and I love her, Lennon McCartney. And I really loved this particular um, interpretation of this. <laughs> so what I said here is, I could say that this tune needs no introduction, but they give it a rather interesting one, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Using that little hook of the opening guitar lick that uh, everyone knows, you know, do, 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 do. Um, yeah. But it's, of course, it's on piano here, and it's extended into something syncopated and hypnotic that has an alternating three beat and five beat feel with some added piano and bass chiming together. There's a slight pause before Grenvia takes the melody, uh, treated lovingly and flowing, and with interesting little answer phrases and altered chords between the phrases. And he chooses some really interesting new uh, ways to harmonize uh, this song. They bring back the intro idea as a transition into some bass improvisations from Alibo that builds up slowly into snappy rhythms that contrast with Granvier's ringing soft chords and figures. And they take it out with the intro idea to a soft ending, but with some bowed bass uh, that cuts right through. Track 7, Five Zerka, and Dolman gets a clicky <laughs> groove going with bass drum kicks in there as well. Bass rings in Granvier with a ringing chord section in the advertised 5-4 rhythm for a 20-measure section, and then an equal-length higher melody line section. There's some rhythmic chords over bowed bass to start a transition to intensity uh, that builds up over throbbing bass and some surprising pauses, and a rhythm change up to a bass and piano unison line. Uh, to a high piano figure that starts a new solo piano interlude into improvisations as the bass and drum join back in, forming another groove. They work back into the chord section, really ringing it out, and some intense drumming added in from Dolman. That comes to a kind of cute ending with a pause and a reset into rhythmic solo piano chords. Bass and drums build up the groove again and push it to the ending with the dynamic change-up idea we heard before. There's a lot of transitions and sections in this tune. Track 8, Set Awe. S-E-T. He's going to some odd languages here at the end. Anyway, there's some mean-sounding, double-stopped rhythmic bass ostinato patterns that this get this yeah. one going. And if you're counting, well, this is this episode's 7-8 tune. That's three weeks okay. in a row. We've got one. Wow. It's, it's coming, it's coming back in style. Yeah. Uh, Granville adds some 
improvisations and dolmen dancing cymbals. There's a break into the melody, which is chord-based in the piano with undulating right-hand figures. It alternates between eight measures of A and B sections, with the B being more flowing, and then a new section that takes it to a break, and a new feel for the 5-4 groove with rhythmic figures, and back into the A section with more variations. Then the groove dissipates to a flow kind of feel for improvisations from Granvier. It works back to intensity with Dolman's drumming and throbbing bass for percussive ideas and flowing lines from Granvier. They work it back into the transition section to a break and into some vamping with bass lines for Dolman to get busy. His toms really ring out on the drum set and they keep it going right up to the end. Track 9, C'est Bel Pas. This one starts with some voice recordings. Sounds like a family gathering or a you know, a little celebration or something. The melody idea is repeated rhythmic syncopated minor chord sequences from Grumvier locked in with Alibo over very clicky subdivisions from Dolman, and it becomes kind of hypnotic. They come to an end for a solo bass restart from Alibo. Piano and drums join back in the groove with improvisations from Granvier, and they get back to the chord sequences and vocalizations get added on top of that. It comes to another stop with pretty piano trickles, and after a long pause, Granvier gets things going again with a slower flowing piano matching the same harmonic kind of progression that gets a drum groove and finally low bowed bass lines added in. Alibo gets back to plucking some ringing lines in unison with the piano melody, and Grenvier makes a softly ringing piano ending with a cymbal roll flourish from Dolman. Track 10 is called Open Mind, and it's a solo piano piece. There's high ringing rhythmic piano figures that get added repeating low notes, and then new figures with insistent rising bass lines. There are harmonic changes and changes in the rhythmic figures that become like variations on what you heard before. Some zippy right-hand improvisations over the left-hand patterns work into more rhythmic figures, and then a return to the melody that ends up in an unexpected harmonic destination. So, keep Hmm. an open mind as the title suggests. And the track 11 is uh, Yella called the full track. So it's a longer version of what we heard before, but it's worth checking out for the more extended uh, piano solo that's included here. Anyway, that's it. It's a recording full of rhythmic intensity, all original compositions other than And I Love Her. Grammy's compositions are often unorthodox, so it would take me a few more listens to figure out all the structures here. But in general, they always seem to open up into new variations or turn in unexpected directions. There's lots of Afro-Caribbean rhythmic patterns and uh, complex rhythm ideas in here to discover in the songs. Uh, Grenvier can be flowing with a soft touch, but I think his ideas come through mostly with strong rhythms, often expressed in melodies that are embedded in chords. Alibo creates a lot of the intensity with a strong bass presence and attack, and Dolman keeps things flowing with an airy kind of simple touch, but he can crank up the pressure with hard hitting accents and ringing toms. So lots of energy and complex rhythmic playing to dive into in this recording. Yeah, as far as the sound goes, too, it's a full-bodied recording with a big, fat bass sound on every track. It's huge. I was really enjoying that a lot, too. Anyway, the piano is right up front, too, and he's really the main thing, but the bass always draws attention when it comes in. The piano sound also, like the bass, impacts your body along with the ears because it's just got such presence. That's, That's another kind of thing to keep in mind about the recording. 
Granville's got some interesting chord voicings and substitute harmonies as well. And that really became clear to me with the overly familiar And I Love Her, a song right. that you know we know we've heard a million times, where he added a chord to the end of the repeating pattern at the beginning. I really enjoyed the sound of that. Yeah, He's kind of in the French style of piano playing regarding his tone and his chord voicings. It sounds like the color of the chords is really important to him, like right. the, the way they come across. Yeah, probably add in you know his the French background and then the Bill Evans uh, piano school, and you're going to get some really interesting focus on voicings and things. But you can also hear Bill Evans is highly influenced by Debussy, so it's really those French I mean, chord yeah. voicings again, you know. Uh, chords are always very full sounding on this record, and uh, I love the fat up front sound of the bass on every track. The piano especially was inventive, and I was constantly interested in what he was going to do. So it's an album fully worth investigating, I'd say. I think it's going to become more interesting with each listen, so I'm going to have to check it mm. out a bit more too, like you, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it's a lot of things in there. Available on uh, CD yet or not. I haven't found it. I'll probably write to him and uh, find out if it's going to be uh, coming out on Mm -hmm. CD in the future. It would be an interesting one to get. Well, there you have it. Solo, duo, trio, quartet. That uh, wraps up episode 117. Next week, we've got a plan. We're going to have a little bit of... uh, Brassiness, I think. Uh, Again, both we got Costco a few brassy things jazz. coming up, really. Yeah. Well, next week, I'll be serving up a trombone sandwich. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be delicious. <laughs> yeah, I've got uh, three trumpet recordings from different countries, and one of them has a trombone on it, too, a la the old uh, Clark Terry Bob Brookmeyer kind of sound. Yeah. So two horns together. That'd be nice. In, in a few weeks, we're going to have like a saxophone episode. I've got kind of right. an interesting lineup for that too, because mine's not going to be all sax. It's going to be cello and sax. So I'll also include a cello recording on that one too. Oh, okay. That sounds like an Just interesting to mix. Make it all bad together. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to see what those recordings are for next week and get a jump on listening, shortly after this episode gets published, you can find that playlist on Deezer and also a link to it on our Facebook page. So uh, do check that out. I want to say thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island, as always, for our glowing neon logo. And uh, as we introduce the same difference Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. Their promo will play at the end of this recording. So check that out and uh, do check out their podcast during the week. It comes out uh, every other week. So you can add that to your music listening experience and learn a bit more about jazz standards. All right. And there we go. Another one in the can. Another one. Almost at 120. Wow. Be there in a couple weeks. Yeah, getting there soon. 120. And then 125. That's a bit. That's a milestone too. Yeah. Well, we've got yeah. a big rainy week coming up, so it should be good for uh, Got to put the tarpaulin over the field. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> getting uh, snuggled up with uh, some good recordings. So Exactly. It's going to be a big listening week of adult music, un- upcoming adult music, episode music, and just other stuff too, because yeah. uh, I think I'm going to be in my easy chair all week long <laughs> getting out to get out of the rain. All right, so if we survive the uh, floodwaters, we will be back again with some... Big brass uh, be, next week. Being that we have a mountain lair, that is a worrying thing. <laughs> <laughs> Floodwaters do come down yeah. from the mountain on occasion. We'll be back 
with some Brass Recordings, episode 118. So we'll see you again next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.